Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, Stephanie Burke, and guest host tonight, John Brightman. We are here to talk with you about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. We are streaming live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com as well as on YouTube, not on the radio, college football. So uh, tonight you have us just over the internet, which means we can say whatever we want, and we will. We'll say all kinds of things that we're not supposed to. That's what we do here. Uh, and, of course, we'll talk about snacks at some point. <laughs> that's that's the whole point it's of the spooky show. spooky snack coast. People aren't tuning in to hear about the ghosts no. anymore. They just want to hear about what different foods we had over Thanksgiving. So we'll get into some of that, I'm sure, at some point. Oh, let me turn that off. So uh, I think we got everything going. I think I have everything correct. We'll find out. We'll find out as we go along. But Stephanie's back in the studio. I am officially back. It's been way too long. We've gotten new carpets since you were gone. You know what? I've been staring at those for a while and thinking to myself, something's different. Something's different. But they look like they already got messed up. They did. That happened the day they went in. No way. Yeah. Uh, the the common theory around here is that the person who installed the carpet yep. stepped in some of the glue and tracked it over the rugs. Yep. And I guess they're denying that. But, really? Yeah. We tried to do an investigation, an internal investigation, checked everybody's shoes. Did you really? To see who's... Oh, my, yeah. Michael Rock had everybody standing out there checking the bottom of their shoes. <laughs> that is hilarious. And uh, they filmed it. You can see it on the Fun 107 YouTube channel. But I think that uh, I think that it was definitely the, the installer because it was happening like as he was doing it. That's bizarre. And now the somebody's got to come in and clean it. And I, yep. I guess that's turned into a whole thing. So... But they're in the process of putting new carpeting in all over the place. And then we're going to start jazzing up the studio. I don't know if you saw saw my handiwork over here. I did not see your handiwork, but I, I did see that everything is missing. And this yeah. is brand new. So cabinet over I, here. Well, that's only, that's only right. here until the rugs settle and they can put it back out. That, this we, feels strange. We, we took down all those pictures. I came in here and I scraped off all the tape with Goo Gone. So this wow. tonight's show is sponsored by Goo Gone. Goo Gone. All right. Because I used almost a whole damn bottle between that and the, <laughs> the news booth window. Uh, but we got it all nice and clean. So this is what we do for you folks out there watching on Spooky TV. And if you are somebody who listens to the podcast and you've never listened live on Saturday nights, every Saturday night we have cameras set up all over the studio. Every Saturday night you can see our ugly faces. Well, except Stephanie. But the rest of us, are. On, I'm including you in this, John, you're... you're you're just as uh, frightening on camera as you are in real life. I, I try. I mean that in a good way, though. The, the paranormal Shrek. Weren't you called that at one point? What? I, I, what? Yeah, a couple of people have called really? me. No, that. I thought uh, John's the one that mentioned it to me. Yeah, somebody That's somebody really did mention that to me and call me that. So I'm just kidding. John's a good-looking guy. The ladies love John Brightman. Nah. Who doesn't? Come on now. <laughs> and we're going to get into some... Well, we know who doesn't love you. We're going to talk about yes, that later on in the true. show. I can't wait. That'll be part of the topic for tonight. <laughs> uh, because it's something that popped up over the last uh, 24 hours or so, and it's something that we want to address just to set the record straight. And also because, you know, Spooky South Coast is tied into to what it is that you're doing. So we'll we'll do some record straightening, I guess we'll I like that. use that phrase. We'll I do like some of that a little bit later on. Awesome. And uh, we'll, we'll be joined also uh, in a few moments by Ashley, our Week and Weird correspondent, for the first time in a while. She's been off the show almost as long as you have. You know, she has. And she's she's popped up to a few places that I've been at. So 
Well, that's at times thing. I'm guilty for stealing her. Well, like last week, we're like, uh, is Ashley doing the weekend weird? And then we see pictures, we're like, nah, no, no, she's not. No, 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 I stole her. Even these, though these people with their vacations, even though just she could have taken time ten off. minutes out of the night. Oh yeah, and yeah, just sure. gone over and done it. No, she was busy yelling at me because I read her in front of a group of people. So, well, it happens. Does it happen? I don't know. You're the you're the psychic. I don't do that stuff. Right. I'm just assuming that it happens. Well, she was probably thinking it was not going to happen, so she sat in there. But I did steal her. But uh, even though we are streaming on YouTube, you can still call in during the show at 508-996-0500, You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, at SpookySC, or using the hashtag SpookyLive. And then we also have the chat room going on in Spooky TV as well. Chrissy says, my face is so red. My face is medium red. It's, it's like it's regular red. red. Must be, must, Can yep. they see the red background behind you? Because that might be why. She needs to adjust the settings on her video stream, maybe. <laughs> I think I look perfectly fine. I used uh, I used some some of my beard soap because my you? beard finally got long enough, and I threw some conditioner in it. So maybe that's giving me a nice glow. It looks the same as last time I saw you. That's that's, that's got to be longer. You haven't seen me in like a month. Actually, no, it's been, yeah. been like no, three weeks. No, it's been longer. No, 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 no it hasn't. No. no. No, it's been like two weeks. But the beard is still longer than it was. I like it longer, though. I don't like it shorter. I like to let it grow out so I can have everybody ask me to come play Santa Claus at their school. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. You can't do that yet. Why can't he? Because it's not white. He I actually looked into the process. Didn't you really? I looked into like what you have to do to whiten it. Yeah, because a couple of years ago, uh, the first time I grew my beard out, the, the I forget who it was, but some organization asked me if I would play Santa Claus. And I said, well, I really don't like doing it because mm-hmm. I don't like people's kids sitting on my lap. It's weird. Yep. But, uh, but I'll do it if you want me to do it. And so, you know, it's for a good cause. Right. And so I was like, well, instead of having to wear the stupid, like, fake beard and all that stuff, mm-hmm. let me look into what the process is of actually whitening your beard. I assume, like, you know that spray on snow that you can <laughs> you just, like, spray into windows? That. Well, I assume they had something like that, uh-huh. you know, like, like use on Halloween. Yeah. Yep. Like on Halloween, you put that green and blue mm-hmm. spray. Yep. I thought they would have, like, a white spray to make Santa beards, but they don't. So I looked into the process of actually turning it white. It's not easy. No. That white paint that I used on you guys for Halloween, mm-hmm. that would be perfect for that. You because put it in, you yeah. can just put it in and it'll wash right out just as easy as it came off you guys for Halloween. Well, anybody that wants me to play Santa Claus that just heard that, you forget you heard that. <laughs> oh, my God. That was, Hey, I still get compliments on that on that zombie appearance, so I know. we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see I'd if we can. Try to hide those photos from the public see if we oh, can, no. see if we can get I, people to I take on zombie around. zombie santa claus sorry Everybody that sneezes. work if you have to sneeze like just raise your hand i'll pull your mic down i'm sorry it was unexpected it's all right it we're gonna, when, when we get everything set up you're gonna have sneeze and cough buttons <laughs> really? it'll, well, it'll be the same button it won't be like one for sneeze one for cough it's i gonna didn't be think the you're gonna button. give me separate ones that that wouldn't make sense so uh but when are we getting rid of the plants that i'm allergic to uh you have to talk to phil about oh, that phil please those are phil's plants phil phil loves his plants I can't breathe. <laughs> and it's right. every time I come in. All right. Ashley's in the chat room, so I'm going to assume that she's ready. So we'll uh, we'll bring her on, and we'll get weird with the Week in Weird. And then again, uh, a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by our guest, Erica Millman. She has written a novel called The Murderer's Maid, a Lizzie Borden novel. And she's done a lot of research into Lizzie Borden. So we're going to talk to her about all the research that she's done, about what the novel is about. And we'll talk about some of the stuff she's working on now and, and just some of her other interests 
uh, in the field as well. But uh, the, I just got the novel the other day in the mail, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But uh, I was kind of thumbing through it, and it looks very interesting. And I, I love when people take real historical events and, and turn them into a novel. Oh, hey, let's not hit the microphone. Still need that. But uh, So we'll talk to her about that coming up in just a few minutes. Let me just see if I can get Ashley on the phone here. All right. Well, what do you have for us this week? So anything that has the word spooky or haunted in the title is kind of our go-to type of thing. And then you add a graveyard into the mix, and we've got a party. At least in my eyes, we do. Um, titled, and I quote, The World's Most Haunted Graveyards and Where to Find Them. I threw this up on our Twitter feed um, sometime last week, and everyone went nuts over it, so I thought it was best to bring it to you guys. Um, I was on the website called The Occult Museum, which I was like, whoa, for a, it's kind of creepy, but whatever. And they put together the most haunted graveyards. And now I'm thinking about taking a trip to all these places because, hello, they're cool looking and they're creepy. So I'm only going to name a few of them and then um, you can go and we look at the link that's connected to it as well. Um, number one is called the Highgate Cemetery. It's in Swan Lake in London, England. Um, there's the Bachelor Grove Cemetery in Illinois, so we're keeping it keeping it a little bit everywhere. We got um, Gray's Fair in Scotland. We have Cat Coombs in Paris. We have the Union Cemetery in Eastern Connecticut, which I've actually been to, and you just kind of drive by it and you get an eerie feel. And then you have one um, right here in Massachusetts, um, Howard Street Cemetery in Salem. So there's a lot more you guys can check out. Um, and, and one of them was the, uh, the the Union Cemetery, right, in, in yeah. Connecticut? And, yeah. And, uh, and Jeff Belanger uh, tells the story about that cemetery in our stage show, An Evening of Ghost Stories in New England Legends, where he actually grew up like right down the street from that cemetery. And so that's a, a very common legend where, where he lived. But Ed and Lorraine Warren also lived one town over. And, uh, yeah. and Jeff knew them when he was a kid. And uh, Ed Warren actually showed him video footage that he captured of the White Lady of Easton, the one who's seen in that in that cemetery. So, yeah, it's like they they're like kind of like patrol the area a little more, so you gotta like watch what you do. But um, it's just like creepy to look at, and I like it. <laughs> and speaking of which, on a lot of those top haunted cemetery lists that you see out there. Uh, the Ellis Bowl Cemetery on Wolf Island Road in, in Rochester always makes it onto those lists, and we have to just remind everybody that's listening not to go into that cemetery. Don't go there legend tripping. Don't go there ghost hunting. Uh, the society that takes care of it does not want anybody trespassing in there at night, so I'm putting that caveat on your story. Yes, that's most. Just go look at the the website. It's the You can watch videos and stuff like that and pretend you're there. It's great. Right. Uh so I do have another story for you guys. All right. It comes from the Occult Museum again. It's called Eight Bizarre Mysterious Photos That Have Never Been Explained. Now, myself being a photographer, I enjoy looking at different types of photos and how things are done. And then you mix the paranormal into it, and I'm just a happy camper because I like to prove everyone wrong, if I can. Um, in the article, it shows eight different photos that have been tried to be figured out. Um, what they are, and a lot of them date back to where Photoshop didn't exist, so it's hard to tell whether they're overexposed and such. But the, the first um, one on the list was called the Bushka Lady, and it just doesn't make sense to me. As a person doesn't seem to look ghostly-like um, or have any paranormal connection to it besides 
from the article, so I was really confused. Um, it stated that the Briscoe Lady is nicknamed to give to the unidentified woman present in the early 1963, right before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The woman appeared in numerous films that was captured in the final moments of Kennedy's life. She's seen standing holding a camera to her face, even though most of her surrounding witnesses had taken cover. Just odd things like that. The FBI still hasn't figured out who she is or may know who, who she was. And to this day, it's some mystery. And I just don't know what to make of it because back then, Photoshop wasn't a thing. Like, it was really hard to do. So to go out of your way to put yourself into a photo just kind of blows my mind. So just that's another link to look at. It's really great. Um, there's a whole bunch of photos. Like eight. I think it's eight, I said. Um, but they go all over the place and just really neat to look at. So that's something you guys should check out. All right. And uh, and one of the interesting things about, uh, you know, when you're doing this this kind of stuff, you know, you see all this research that people put into things and all these stories and, and ideas they've put together. And we encourage anybody that's done anything like that, send it to us. So if you if you've written something like this, if you've put together a website or, or a blog on something like this, send it to us. Let us know. Keep us up to date on all this stuff because we can include that stuff in uh, what we're sharing with the week and weird during the course of the week. And I would love to read it, especially coming from someone personal. Like it'd be really great. Absolutely. And then my l- last one is a did you know, um, and it has a photo to go with it. Um, this makes me want to investigate the White House even more. Um, it says, did you know Abraham Lincoln's ghost is the most popular ghost story in the White House? Lincoln's ghost is said to haunt the White House since his death and has been reported by over 20 different employees, residents, including First Ladies, Harry, excuse me, First Ladies, Harry Truman, Teddy Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. Now, you can imagine what's gone on the White House over the years. So you add all that stuff together, and you probably have, like, a really good paranormal hotspot because you just don't know what works around each corner. So, yeah, it's pretty cool, I think. So I'll throw that up on our Twitter later tonight, and you guys can check that out. And Matt's got uh, the uh, the Did You Know oh, up on the screen right now. There you go. See? That's- and while you're also checking that out, you can check out our YouTube for our past shows, Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, to stay up to date with everything we do spooky. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, and we'll h- talk to you next week. Yes, you will. All Bye. Right. Have a great night. You too. Bye. That is Ashley Turner, our Week and Weird correspondent, and uh, we will definitely talk to her next week. Now that we can tell her how to talk to us, even when she's out and about, and Stephanie can remind her how to do all. This I stuff. will for sure. So that, you know, just if she can, it's not like she has to pull herself away if she's busy for doing it. But the people like the week and weird. Remember all those years that we stopped doing it? We would get emails every week. When's the week and weird coming back? We got that for a long time, and I quit the week and weird because I was terrible at it because I was pregnant and could barely stay awake when I started. It's it. <laughs> it's not it's not easy to do. As, it's not, as, especially when you're exhausted. As somebody that reads news stories every day. It's it's not easy. It's no. definitely a skill that you have to work at, and and so you did give the best advice though. What's that? What did I say? I don't remember, but it was good at the time. <laughs> oh, obviously, you can just stop doing it. <laughs> no, you you were very good at at coaching me to do the, it properly. I just couldn't stay awake. The, so. the biggest problem I have with reading is that people don't listen as fast as I talk. So that's on them. That's not on yep. me. I don't talk too fast. They just listen too slow. There you go. 
I just, I, I got three minutes. I got to do what I got to do in three minutes. Right. With the week and weird, you don't have three minutes. You have like 10 minutes, so mm-hmm. you can take your time. It's a lot easier that way. All right. Well, uh, we can, uh, we can jump right into things with our guests because she's on the line right now with us. And again, uh, we were talking about this, um, a little bit earlier. This is going to take up part of the show and, uh, then part of it will be the, the, Last half hour or so, we'll be talking about some news that popped up over the last 24 hours. Uh, but for the at least for the next hour or so, we're going to be talking about Lizzie Borden and about this novel and about some other work. But anytime, anything that we're talking about, if you feel like you want to call in with any questions, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. But joining us on the line is our guest, Erica Mailman, is an author of The Witch's Trinity, a San Francisco Chronicle notable book and Bram Stoker Award finalist and Woman of Ill Fame, a Pushcart Press Editor's Book Award nominee. She's a Yaddo Fellow and lives in Northern California with her family, and she's joining us on the line right now. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. I know it's, it's been a little while that we've been trying to, to bring you on to the show, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that it finally worked out and we were able to get you on. Me too. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, you know, anytime anybody wants to talk about Lizzie Borden, we're more than happy. Because we talk about Lizzie Borden all the time off the air, so <laughs> why not on the air? It's, yeah, it's worth bringing it on the air too. And, and Lizzie Borden shows because we do this show on the south coast of Massachusetts. You know, twenty minutes from the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. It's it's a story that's close to our local listeners on the radio. But when we put out the podcast, when we put out the the YouTube stream, all the stuff that we do that gets picked up around the world, people all over the globe are fascinated with this story still to this day. Is 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 that what you've been receiving uh, from people who have purchased the book? Is it something that has been, you know, it's it's not just people in New England that are interested in the story. It's it's something that's international. Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's definitely something that's stronger in New England, where people I think grow up hearing that jump rope rhyme. That maybe on the West Coast, it's not as prevalent. But pretty much any time I do an event, I say, "Who has heard of Lizzie Borden?" and like probably 98% of hands go up. It, it really is. It's one of those, you know, it's, they call it the O.J. Simpson trial of its time, and, and it was. I mean, and it was at a time when gaining notoriety like that was not easy. It wasn't like people went home and turned on court TV every night to see what was going on with the Lizzie Borden trial. Right. These, were, these were stories that were picked up all over the world with just a handful of people covering the story in Fall River. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to think that um, most major newspapers actually sent a reporter across the country to sit there in that crowded little courtroom to um, transcribe the trial and report about it on a daily basis. And it is one of those, uh, when you read, I'm sure that you've gone through things like the Lizzie Borden source book and some of the original stories and, and all that, and it's it's amazing the way that they could write back then because even though newspapers were supposed to be you know the the supposed to be the free press that had its had its uh, objectivity in place it certainly wasn't the case with what they were writing about with this case it was very emotional writing whether whether they were trying to say lizzie was guilty or innocent or what but there was a very demonstrative writing of everything that was going on in the courtroom and, and it seemed like there was a lot of judgmental writing there as well yeah it's really interesting i think it's um a really florid kind of writing style and um, embroidering truth, perhaps, to have a, a more um, sensationalistic story. And I feel like I was just talking the other day to somebody about this, that journalism seems to have, like, it, it had that period of time where it was almost like a newspaper story was 
sort of a cross between nonfiction and fiction, and um, they it almost had a feel of, of fiction as it unfolded. And then, of course, we kind of hit the golden age of investigative reporting and fair and balanced reporting, where you really took care to make sure both sides were equally represented. And um, and then it feels like we're kind of reverting back to a more sensationalistic form of journalism, especially since so much of our news is coming just on the ground from bloggers who are there or people who have their phone and record it and upload it. And it's just very subjective, again, in a way, whereas for a while there was a wonderful golden age of objective reporting, I think. Well, you know, when I read the the Lizzie Borden stories and things from that era, I look back to, you know, I'm a, I'm a sports writer is, is one of my many hats that I wear. And when you read historical sports writing, that was a big thing back then was, you know, scene setting, putting people into the story, putting people into the moment. It wasn't so much about the facts as it was getting people the experience that they were missing by not being there. And, and I think that a lot of that yeah. same approach was brought to the trial. It was very much like, you know, if it, it's almost like it was a, a, if it was on court TV, you know, you're getting every m- little bit of minutia that went on. You're getting every outburst yeah. that somebody had. You're getting all of these fantastic details. Yeah, I think that's really an interesting perspective, like the idea that they're they're trying to create the sense that you're there, which does involve kind of five senses reporting and not kind of a stripped down to the bare bones sentence that delivers information and very little else. Um, that's I think you, you've hit put your finger on it that there was kind of like an ambiance based reporting where the feel of the courtroom may have been or of the baseball stadium may have been more important than getting the actual facts 100% correct. So what was it about the, the Lizzie Borden story that drew you into it, that, that sparked your interest? Was it connected to the story that you came up with, or was the Lizzie stuff already festering before you came up with the idea for the novel? Oh, You know, I have been interested in her ever since I was a teen, and her being Lizzie Borden. And... Um, I just, I guess I have kind of a macabre sensibility and I'm interested in the dark side of human nature. And so I just thought that was such an interesting case. And, um, I always knew I would write about her in a fictional way. And then a couple of things came together a few years ago. Um, one of which was I was reading another author's historical novel and she mentioned a Mr. Borden who was just a side character who maybe appeared for a couple of pages, and he had a textile factory. And I just kind of thought, oh, my gosh, I bet she's going to go on to write about the Lizzie Borden case because Lizzie's father, um, Mr. Borden, owned textile mills, among other endeavors. And I just kind of got this kind of like, prickling sense along my spine like she's gonna beat me to it i've got to get on it and so um that's when that was the trigger for me to say like well it's time i've got to jump on the story i always knew i was going to write about and um so i delved back into some research that i had already you know done as a as a teen and i realized that nobody was telling the story from bridget sullivan's point of view and i thought that that was just um absolutely the kingpin, because the day that Mr. and Mrs. Borden were hatcheted to death, the only other person in the house that day besides them and Lizzie Borden was Bridget Sullivan. 
And certainly, I know you've been in that house, Tim. You know how small and claustrophobic it is and right. how difficult it would be for conversations to happen um, or bodies to fall to the floor without you hearing it from other vantage points in the house. So I really think Bridget well, and- was privy to a lot more than she ever told let's not forget either that when it happened it was august 4th 1892 so it's a it's a probably a warm day the windows are open i know that bridget was washing windows but i'm sure windows were open while she was doing that so you had to have heard what was going on inside yes you know when i took the um i stayed overnight in the bed and breakfast uh was that two years ago now and um one of the things that our fabulous tour guide did um it was Colleen um, I, I, Johnson, I think is her last name. She was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And she said, I weigh about what Mrs. Borden weighed. And she just, standing there in the parlor, jumped up and down hard. And it, it made the floor shake. And she said, you know, if Mrs. Borden was upstairs and was standing and took a blow and fell to the ground, you would feel that reverberating throughout the house. Oh, absolutely. There's nobody yeah. you wouldn't have. And, in fact, the, the the shudder that the ground made, because she didn't tell us she was going to do that, I actually shrieked a little bit because it really was shocking to feel the ground shake like that. Uh, so, definitely, Bridget, how could she not have been aware of that? I mean, if I I'm there... I don't see it. When, when what do there... you think? When we're there doing events, you know, it's either the winter time when the heat is on or the summertime when the air conditioning is on. So there's uh, always some degree of, of noise going on in the building. And so when we're having our events, I'll be on the third floor and I'll just be talking to people and walking around and people will say to me on the first floor, you know, can you quiet down or can you stop clomping around? The, the sound travels in that house. And as much as you can hear because the walls are thin and the floors are thin, it's, it also seems like everything kind of just reverberates in that house as well. Yeah. So imagine how it must have that been. my sense too, yes. 1892 when you don't even have cars driving by to add into the noise. You have, you know, maybe the occasional horse and carriage coming by. But for the most part, it was a lot quieter than it is now. And if you can hear that stuff now, you definitely would have heard it back then. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, it's just a quieter time period. And um, so I got really interested in... Bridget Sullivan as a lens to tell the story through. And I just found so many interesting things about her through my research and the research that others who have gone before me have done. And I, of course, have to give credit to um, to several blogs, sites, and um, forums online that are just incredible, laborious um, places. That's not the right word. <laughs> um, laborious in the best sense of the word that people have really duped over these details and um, added their own thoughts to some research and they're they're, um, fascinating to read through and they're a great way to fact check something quickly and um, I'm just so grateful for those sources. Um, One of the things that really interested me was Bridget's Irishness because I think that's part of why she wasn't questioned so closely and why her areas of the house were not investigated. Um, You know, this was a time period when the Irish immigrants were very scorned and the time period where there were the signs in the windows of 
shops and businesses saying Irish need not apply. And I mean, I think she was, you know, the Irish people were really considered lower class. And uh, so they'd sooner um, question the dog about what went on than they would an Irish person. Sort of got an out in terms of not being so very closely questioned. And it's interesting to me that the inquest testimony from Bridget is missing. Um, I would just give any kind of amount of money to have that arise out of somebody's attic and um, be able to read through that. And some of the sort of vestiges that we can get from what the testimony might have said come through in the trial when um, attorneys kind of question her about things that she previously said at the inquest, and then she changes her story on them. As you know, like when, um, I guess in the inquest, we can surmise that she was saying when Lizzie called her down from the attic bedroom to say someone's come in and murdered father, Bridget testified that she had been crying. But by the time of the trial, a year later, she was saying, no, she wasn't crying. And, of course, um, the attorney wanted her to keep saying that and and, um, make Lizzie seem less cold and chilly-hearted. It definitely would help her case if she had been sobbing and crying upon discovering her father's body. Uh, But Bridget just said, no, I don't know if I said that. I don't know why I would have said it, because it's not true. She wasn't crying. So I definitely wonder what else is in the in the inquest testimony that she went back on later. And and Bridget would have been in a unique position uh, besides being one of the only people in the house at the time of the murders, but just in all the things that led up to it in in the prosecution trying to establish some kind of a motive, she would have been somebody who would have been there every single day and they would have freely fought in front of her. All of these problems that the Bordens were having, they would have thought nothing about saying it out loud right in front of Bridget because, you know, the servant was just the background. It was somebody that you didn't even give a thought to. So they would have had... Yeah, they completely discounted her, and her presence in the house was, you know, just of no value to them or of no notice to them. So, yeah, I think she overheard many bitter arguments, and um, although my novel... The Murderers Made is is very highly researched, and I tried to get everything as historically accurate as I could. There was, of course, a point where I had to start inventing, and mm-hmm. so some of those overheard fights and discussions were really fun for me to to create out of whole cloth and um, and insert in the book. And but that um, is that is the challenge, um, though, too, is because now you're trying to craft this character. Uh, and, and trying to keep it as historically accurate as you can, but there's there's just not enough to to really feel like you can take what's out there and, and craft her as a person, as a three dimensional character in your novel. Do you feel like you were able to to take what was out there and, and do justice to the real Bridget Sullivan? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I really am so deeply fascinated by the story that I I think at least on the research end I did um, justice to it, and I really. Um, struggle with like certain details that were actually very minor, but it was important to me to hammer them down and get them right. And um, so hopefully that that succeeds. There's also a modern day narrative um, in the novel. There's a, a woman named Brooke, and she is the daughter of a Mexican immigrant. And that's for me that was important to sort of 
talk about the issues of immigration through, you know, like what's going on modern day versus mm-hmm. what was happening with, with Irish immigrants in the 1800s and sort of similar treatment. And um, so Bridget, or sorry, Brooke, the modern day character, she believes that her mother was murdered by some people who are now after her. And so she changes her identity every, you know, like a couple of times a year. She'll just change her name, move to a different city, um, undertake a new identity, and get paid under the table. And that's how she lives. And she's just always hoping to stay a step ahead of the, the men who wish her harm. And then um, through the course of the novel, she learns that she actually has a some sort of an interesting connection to the Lizzie Borden story. And so that's when I'm able to take those two um, very different chronologies and make them meet in a way. And, and I suppose that uh, there's been a lot of, you know, hindsight over the years since the, the Borden murders took place and people have been able to kind of go back and, and, and look at things through a more of a modern eye and, and look at things over the passage of time as more information has come out than that might have been available at the time of the murders. Do you kind of use the novel and, and having that, you know, 21st century connection as part of the storytelling? Do you use that as a way to kind of look back to what happened to what Bridget Sullivan went through? Do you put it through that lens? Or are you telling everything on her side through her eyes and through her experiences in that time period? Well, one of the things that I would just love is to have a psychologist go through these court transcripts and all of the papers around this case and and give us their determination as to what Lizzie's mind state was, um, state of mind was. Uh, so I think what's wonderful about the plethora of Lizzie Borden novels um, and even the nonfiction that's out there is that everybody has a slightly different take on the motivations behind the murders, if in fact those murders were committed by Lizzie, as we all know, she was acquitted. Um, and so that's what's really um, satisfying to me is that I came up with what I felt was my historically accurate motivation for Lizzie's murdering of her father and stepmother. And I made sure that my book was in galley form. In other words, it was being printed at the printer before I ever went to another novel about the Lizzie Borden case to read it because I didn't want to be um, swayed or um, subconsciously influenced by other authors' ideas of what her motivations could have been. So I wanted to do it cleanly, and then once I had mine sort of packed up tight, then it was really fun to go and start reading back through some of the recent and older novels about Lizzie. I'm sure you've read pretty much everything that there is out there. And there's so many different theories, uh, so many different ideas, so many different possible motivations. You know, I've heard everything from, uh, you know, that uh, Lizzie and Bridget were involved in some sort of lesbian relationship and i've heard things yeah. about uh, the you know the victoria lincoln theory where uh, lizzie had um uh, she was kind of uh, schizophrenic and, and epileptic and yep so there's all these theories that are out there and, and the thing is is you can put any theory you want out there because we're never going to know who's right and who's wrong right yeah that's what's fun about it is that there there is no totally right or wrong about it um i do i've heard that the the movie that 
filmed this year and we're waiting for it to be released does take that tack that Lizzie and um, Bridget were involved romantically. And that, that was part of the motivation well, behind sure. the murders. It's, it's a salacious um, story. I, so, I didn't yeah. take that tack. Um, it's really interesting to me to see how some portions of the case that are kind of important, you just decide not to, to use it or you sort of give it low low impact in your book. For instance, um, I've also seen it the other way, like things that I felt like were really key components and I really devoted chapters to it. Others just kind of, you know, glance at it and let it go. One of those things for me was the um, the incident where Lizzie laughed on the staircase as Bridget was trying to let in Mr. Borden while Mrs. Borden was already lying dead on the guest room floor. And to me, that was the single most chilling detail of the case, was that she's just standing there for no reason, like a madwoman laughing in full view of, you know, if she turned her head and looked, of Mrs. Borden's corpse. And so um, I used that scene, and the book sort of circles around and touches back on it a couple of times. And yet, when I read other people's books, sometimes they, they don't seem to find that particular detail as compelling and vice versa. I've seen some. I've read some books where I was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool that you picked up on that and amplified it and made it larger." Whereas I just decided not to use it that much or focus on it. It is hard, though, uh, as somebody who has researched this case myself for a, a, a long time now. It is hard to, at least from the paranormal aspect. I know when you just want to open up a transcript or, you know, somebody else's uh, novel, uh, maybe Parallel Lives, if you want to. You know, use that as a as a source, or all these different things to help you build these characters. You're getting a lot of straight factual information, but there's been a lot of conjecture over the years. There's been a lot of stuff that has become part of the the legend of Lizzie Borden that might not actually have been true, but that has just become commonly accepted because so many people just keep regurgitating it. Yes, that's really frustrating when you even find um details that two different sources absolutely contradict each other over and you're like well which one's more trustworthy and i i think also there's an issue with 1800s language and like what things meant because sometimes when you're reading a court transcript and you come across a line that one of the people spoke its meaning has been kind of lost to time and you're like i don't really understand what they're what they're saying here and it's not just a question of like the vocabulary of the time, because that's very easy to look up, but it's like phraseology or just, I don't know, and I wish I could think of a specific instance of where this happened, where I was like, I just, it's lost to us in our year 2017. We don't understand what they meant by this. There, There's also the other problem where I think that we've kind of wanted the story to fit certain narratives over the years as well. I think that people have come up with theories, and because they have a theory, and that's what they're going to put their 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 money behind, uh, figuratively speaking, that they want to try to morph the story to fit into that particular theory, and that doesn't really do the actual events that happened on that day or leading up to that day any justice. Yeah, I think so. I think, and that may be part of what I was saying. Like you pick and choose the details that you that you amplify and the ones that you kind of push under the carpet because or just completely some of those make up better support what you're trying to do with the story and, and some don't 
I mean, some people just completely make up stories. Uh, you know, the, the story that I remember being the, the, the big thing, because, you know, we deal with the paranormal stuff, so we hear a lot of stuff that comes from psychics and mediums that go in there. And one of the big stories that was coming out when, when we first got involved with the house was the idea that uh, Andrew and Lizzie had an inappropriate relationship and that Lizzie got pregnant on two occasions and that Dr. Bowen across the street came over and he actually performed the... the well, Stephanie's saying four, but uh, but either way, he came over from across the street, performed abortions. The bodies were supposed, the, the fetuses were supposedly buried under the wash basin in the basement. All these details that have come out that nobody really knew was true. It was just something that was kind of commonly shared without any factual basis. Has anybody ever looked for? Uh, Moniz uh, took some of it. He wanted to try and look for mitochondrial DNA, mm-hmm. but it's a very expensive process, and there's anything that would have been there is already already gone. So uh, because it wasn't like it wasn't like it was a, a human baby that was already born and would have bones, it would have been. Well, I turned you down yeah. because you were typing very loud. Oh my gosh, that's yeah, that is. Huh? That's his mouse. That's, his that's mouse. a tough. No, but when you were typing um, earlier, that's when I turned it down. When when I went through the house. You know, I, I had heard the, the incest theory before, and I guess I felt like if Mr. Borden had been guilty of that, then sure, go ahead and murder him as far as I'm concerned. That is justice. But I also felt like if, if he hadn't, then his version of hell has just been worsened because he's accused of this thing that is just so... So brutal and horrific, and um, I still think of he and Mrs. Borden as victims. And so I, I had felt like I wasn't going to go down that road just because I didn't know, and I didn't want to slander his name mm-hmm. if I wasn't sure. And um, so during the tour, the tour guide had pointed out the the nails that were. Um, the nail holes between Lizzie's bedroom and, and Mr. Borden's, and that several psychologists who had toured the house said, oh, yeah, this is this is classic, this is textbook, there's no doubt about it based on that. And I asked her privately, I said, what are the other, what's the other support for that theory? And she said the ring that um, Mr. Borden wore that Lizzie had given him and um, that... Hiram, that that relative of theirs, had said that they they had an unnatural and too close relationship. That those were the three bits of of evidence. And I don't know how you feel, but I I just didn't think it was enough for me to to dive into that. Well, so I mentioned it in my author's note. I mean, that's the the happy thing about historical fiction is you can always sort of explain things in the end, like, why did I choose not to go this route? I want to acknowledge that I was aware of this theory, but I didn't want to write it into the novel. Uh, the author's note is just such a great tool for letting readers know. I mean, sure, when when you're dealing with trying to present an accurate historical picture, uh, you can say that that's not enough to go on, and, and I commend you for that, but it's it's certainly been enough for... TV shows to show up and and psychics to show up and paranormal investigators to show up and everybody. I mean, I know that every time I go to that house, if I mention the I word, I can cause all kinds of stuff to happen paranormally. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it was true. It just means that the idea that people are talking about it are getting getting the spirits riled up enough to react. 
Do you feel like um, there is residue in in the house from Lizzie herself? Uh, I'm not exactly sure if Lizzie herself is there because I I don't think that she would have any reason to want to be attached to it. Um, I do think that in general ghost theory, I think the spirits of people who were murdered will stick around in the place where they were murdered just because of the shock of the event that happens. But uh, our theory, and we've been doing a lot of research into this over the last uh, just about 12 years now, is that there's actually something darker there. And I'm not using the D word. But uh, there's something that's like a, a negative energy there that's always been there before the Bordens were there, and I think oh, that that's so interesting. That's what I think is pretending to be the Bordens for a lot of people. Well, wasn't mm. there truth that there were some things that happened prior to the Bordens living there? There were that a woman tried killing her kids, throwing them I'm in a well. I'm actually kind of losing you. I can't hear you right now. I think yeah, it's uh, we have uh, some other folks in the studio, and I think that their microphones don't carry over the phone as well. Uh, but uh, John, John, uh, one of my co-hosts, was mentioning the story of um, Andrew's relatives that live next door where the mother right. tried to kill her children and succeeded in killing two of them and then took her own life. And that happening before the Borden murders. She was related to the Bordens, though, wasn't she? She was yeah, An- Andrew's cousin, uh, niece or cousin. I, I can't remember, but she was related in... Um, oh, I think there's... I'll try and boost it up. Demonic interference. <laughs> hey, you never know. <laughs> I mean, this isn't this isn't unusual for this type of conversation about this entity either. So, right, yeah, oh yeah. When we when we do talk about this topic, we have some problems. That's right. for sure. Uh, but if if anybody else uh, asks a question and, and you can't hear it, Erica, I'll just repeat the question for you. Oh, okay. Um, thank you. I was just going to say that um, when I when I first decided, um, well, actually, I was encouraged by my editor to go stay overnight at the house. I I was reluctant to, but my editor really felt I should, especially because my modern-day character does stay in the house, and there's several scenes set during that tour, so it was important for me to to go. And um, I initially approached um, somebody very, very close to me to be the person to accompany me because I didn't think I could stay there by myself. And this person, this person mentioned the fear of, of demons as a reason not to stay there and, and feeling very vulnerable to that kind of influence. And so instead I had a, um, a really good old college friend stay with me. And I have to say our stay was very uneventful. I did have a really horrific nightmare which related back to the, the next door neighbors. Um, the well in the basement story. But other than that, I didn't feel anything there. And I, I felt things other places. So you had, you, but you had a, a nightmare while you were there? Yeah, I woke up in the morning and, um, you recall that the, the upstairs, um, I guess it's the, the Hosea Knowlton room, or maybe it's the one next to it that the closet is supposed to have kind of energy in it and that, that's the room with the, the wire hangers the room with the chimney in the middle in the night so i had a dream i slept in bridget's room and i had a dream that i i opened up the closet in bridget's room and there was a, a naked child cow there in the dark and um she was i think like you know nine years old or thereabouts which i think is the the, the age of the oldest child who managed to escape her mother next door. So I think that that was all kind of linked. 
I mean, the the third floor is said to be pretty much the domain of those child spirits. Uh, and but why is that? I I don't know. I mean, the only thing that I can think of is that it's it's close. It's close to where the their murders happened. It's on the same property. And if I was speculating, I would say because they were taken, it was the the basin and the basement of the other house where they were drowned, right? And was it outside yeah. or was it in the basement? In the basement. So maybe by staying on the third floor of that house, they're as far away from the basement as could be. It's the only thing I can think of. Ah. Or maybe the maybe whatever is there, because whatever is there, this this dark thing, it definitely lives in the basement. I've seen it. I've encountered it. I've smelled it. I've I've gone to battle with it. And so maybe they just stay up there so that they can stay as far away from that as they can. Well, it's, yeah, that's, that sounds like a reasonable theory. I I know that when I showed up, I was actually very relieved to be staying on the, the only floor of the house where murders had not occurred. And then, of course, the first thing that our tour guide says to us is, oh, you're staying in the most haunted floor of the house. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that was not my plan. Um, and I do have to say, staying in Bridget's room, anytime anybody uses that bathroom next door it feels like they're or it sounds like they're coming into your room because of the way the acoustics work with the door latches so you know we pretty much shrieked every time somebody went to the bathroom in the night well and because um, it felt like somebody was coming into our room and bridget's room is uh is kind of a, a very odd room to be in anyway because the way the angles go the floor slopes downward the ceiling slopes downward over the, by the closet so you're you're dealing with a, a very much a funhouse effect when you're in that room because you just don't ever seem to really get your bearings in there yeah, it makes me think of um, Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House when she talks about how the, the angles aren't exactly 90-degree angles or the house doesn't meet its corners correctly or mm-hmm. something like that. It, it is definitely an off-putting room design. And we have done a lot of, uh, especially lately, we just did an event there. Stephanie and I did a, an event there, uh, what was it, back in September? I think it was September, September 23rd, yeah. So, yeah, back in September we did an event there, and we... we called it a mixture of old school and new school investigating. And so we did some of the modern stuff with some of the modern equipment, but we also did some of the same Victorian-era spiritualism uh, approach to investigation that they would have used back then. And so one of the things that we did is mirror gazing, and we had people doing that in Bridget Sullivan's room, and there was some freaky stuff happening for people there. So that, that room definitely has an energy. Well, that is really scary because... <laughs> I used to really spook myself out as a child doing that, um, you know, brushing my teeth and just kind of mm-hmm. letting your focus go blurry as you look into the mirror. And um, I, I, I don't think I would have the bravery to do that in the Borden household. Well, I didn't say I did. In it. fact, I remember when I went, when I would use the upstairs bathroom, I would like just very quickly kind of not look in the mirror, just kind of breeze past it. I, I try to avoid mirrors in haunted places. Keep my hands looking at the at the basin. Well, I do have to take a, a really quick break for about 30 seconds. We're going to reset some stuff with the video, and then we'll come back with more with our guest, Erica Mailman. She's the author of The Murderer's Maid, and we'll tell you when we come back in just a moment where you can pick up the book. And we'll also talk some more about her research, and we'll talk some more about what else she has coming on. So we'll be back in about 30 seconds. We're back with more Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. And we have 
uh, Stephanie Burke here and John Brightman as well. Science advisor Matt Moniz is off tonight. He's a little under the weather, so he'll join us probably next week. And uh, we are talking with our guest, Erica Mailman. She's the author of The Murderer's Maid. It's a Lizzie Borden novel, but of course the years of research that went into actually putting it all together uh, to make it historically accurate. And Erica, how can people get the book if they do want to pick it up? I'm, I'm having kind of a noise or a, um, a diminishment of your of your voice again. Um, if you have a way to make yourself louder on your end, um, I think you asked me where can people get a copy of the book. Is that what you said? Yes. Um, so it is um, available through all the major online purveyors: Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and um, in fact, it was going to be on all of the um, Barnes & Noble front tables as you first walk in. We um, had a two-week arrangement for the book to be on display on those tables, and then the hurricane actually delayed um, unloading of the cargo ship at port um, because the, the book was coming in from overseas. And so um, we had a great delay in getting physical books into people's hands, and it's only just now been sort of corrected. The the book launched October 30th, and I, I believe um, my sister, who had pre-ordered through Amazon, just got her copy a few days ago. Um, so anyway, Barnes & Noble is wonderful, and they, they rearranged with us to do those front tables. Um, I'm not sure of the exact dates, but it will be in January. Um, but in the meantime, you can definitely go to your local Barnes & Noble. You can go to your independent bookseller and um, ask them to order a copy if they're not already carrying it. And um, it's also available in ebook format. Um, but I very much recommend the hardcover because it's a beautiful artifact of a book. And um, part of why it was delayed coming back from overseas is that we included some extras for readers, which involved things like um, copies of newspaper editorial cartoons of the day, um, some photographs of Lizzie. Her arrest warrant is included in there. So there's some um, really fun that's not the right word there's some really interesting things to peruse in the back of the book and it really is a beautiful book i mean it's uh it's oh, thank you. when when you look at it it just first of all just having lizzie stare back at you is a <laughs> is a creepy thing uh i mean obviously the idea is that um you know writing about bridget and her being the murderer's maid the title of the book was there any discussion about possibly including Bridget on the cover, even though she's going to be a less visible figure for a lot of folks? Was yes. It- there was some discussion about that. And um, some mock-ups that were um, provided to the publisher did have Bridget on the cover. Ultimately, we felt like Lizzie's gaze is so arresting. There just is nothing like that steely, gray look. And, in fact, you're such a Lizzie aficionado that you, you probably noticed that that's the what they call the pansy brooch image. But in the original, her eyes are looking to the side. And I had a little bit of um, input towards the cover, and I asked my editor, can we talk to the designer and have them Photoshop her eyes so they look straight out at the reader? And I think that's what makes such a chilling image on the front cover is she's really looking right at you oh it absolutely does and uh and, and as somebody who has spent a lot of time in her former home and uh and 
attempting to communicate with her and maybe even sometimes succeeding. It's very creepy. I have this. I, I got the book a, a few days ago, and I put it on my end table of my living room. And so every time I'm walking by for, you know, for the last <laughs> week or so, Lizzie Borden is staring at me. That is so creepy. Right. As I walk through. Following you from room to room. And I'm like, well. I tell you, I did um, an event, uh, you know, like a launch event for this book um, in October. And this woman who was a medium, um, a sensitive, came to the event. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, now, while you were talking, she came to me. And I said, who? Who came to you? And she said, Lizzie. Lizzie came to me. and Lizzie made a pun about the word axe being used for ask, oh. like as if so much time has elapsed that she can now have that that sense of humor about it. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. You know, this event was happening in Oakland, California, uh, that Lizzie would come and and have something to say to me about that. See, and, and I think that that's the case. If, if, if Lizzie Borden is coming back to talk to us, I think she's doing it in a way where, you know, she'd want to be doing it in a way where she can kind of express her thoughts and feelings on everything that's happened. I, I don't think it would be, you know, trapped in that house and trapped in a way where she can only answer questions about the murder. I think she'd want to be trying to exonerate herself a little bit in the way that she's communicating with people. And so that's why I think that uh, whatever is communicating with us when we're there is something that's probably more pretending to be Lizzie. Yeah, I get the sense that in her lifetime she was very interested in attention and that may have been part of why she felt so lost in her life was that she didn't get to have these um, entertaining parties and be part of the social life of Fall River in the way that she wanted to be and and uh, a socialite as she hoped for. And, you know, it has occurred to me that maybe she really loves all the attention where her house, you know, the, 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 the Second Street house, even though it was a deplorable place for her in life, that she probably loves it that every room is filled every night and there are people there thinking about her and talking about her endlessly and theorizing about her that she probably thrives on that kind of attention well yeah i mean she wanted to be one of those elite bordens that lived up on the hill and not only did she get to do that before she died but at the same time you know she's now the most famous borden of all time maybe the borden cow might be a close second that's right She's only rivaled by the by the board and milk, right? <laughs> right. That that might be the only thing that gives her a challenge for it. But she's certainly the most notable thing about Fall River. I mean, anybody that talks about Fall River at all, it's the first thing that they mention to the point where it's actually, you know, something that the city has been upset about over the years, but also has finally started to, to really embrace it a little bit as well, too, that if this is going to be your identity, it's going to be your identity. What can you do about it? Yeah, you might as well embrace it because it doesn't seem like it's going to go away. No, it's it. Can I ask you, do you feel like Bridget Sullivan's presence remains in that house? I don't think I've ever encountered her. Stephanie is, is my co-host Stephanie is a psychic medium, so she would probably know better than I would. I have never communicated with Bridget myself in that house, and I've been visiting that house and investigating it for well over 10 years now. Um, I have come across Lizzie on occasion, I want to say maybe 
three times that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, actually, one of those times was when I was pregnant and I walked in there and she showed up and that was the first time I actually physically saw her and she was begging me to mm. leave. Um, you visibly saw her. Where was that? Um, as soon as I walked in the, the side door um, and she followed me around the house and begging me to, to walk out because my baby wasn't safe there. And that, to me, um, had proven the um, the theories that we've all heard because I had heard them for a very long time but to have that happen to me I couldn't communicate with anything else I wasn't you know able to even connect with anybody else in that house that day she was the one that was um, right in front of my face and, and wouldn't stop until I I agreed to leave um, I came across her one other time um, it way into the past, I think, on my first visit there. Um, she doesn't stay there. She just visits occasionally. And um, uh, a time more recently within the past year. But it's not often. Other than that, I've come across Abby. I've spoken to Abby um, Andrew, who is present, and I've been able to see him as well. But the entity in the basement is the one that I come across as as often as a, every single time I go there. Um, the children upstairs on the third floor I've communicated with as well. But they they come and go um, you know, just as much as, as the rest, but the entity in the basement set up shop, it lives there. Yeah, I did. I got a message, uh, as we were talking from, from somebody who said that they got an EVP that said it was Bridget, but that, you know, it doesn't mean that it mm. definitely was. It's right. just, that's, I just, I, I mean, if other people have experienced it, that's awesome. I just haven't personally experienced mm-hmm. her in the house in over 10 years. Not a, not a good place for her anyway in life that no. she would have wanted to have stuck around there. Right. Right. Yeah, she wanted to get as far away from all of that as she could. That's that, and that's what she did. Be pregnant and feel this force focused on you in that way. You must have felt very protective of your child. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I wasn't afraid going in there. I mean, I um, as much as other people were afraid of me going out and investigating and doing everything, I would not have put my child in harm's way. Period. Ever. Um, so I I felt fine walking in, but it was definitely a interesting and freaky experience to have somebody standing right in front yeah. of you. I am able to see them physically um, if they choose to do that, but to have her standing there and looking at me and telling me that was was a really bizarre experience. The worst part was I was only about three months along, so nobody I was with knew I was pregnant, which was terrible because I couldn't share it. So it was a really strange experience for me. Right. And and I think that the other thing about that house too is because so many people are going in there all the time and so many people are in there talking about the murders that it is never anything that goes away. It's never anything that settles. So it's not like all those years that it was a private residence and and the McGinns were living there and mm-hmm. it, you know it, it's not like all this cool down time it's every day every day Lizzie every day murders every day tours talking about what went on so i think that whatever is there kind of wants to keep performing for that to make sure that those people keep coming and talking about it all the I time i think it feeds off of the energy that walks in and out constantly too because it's always fresh blood that's it doesn't nuts. seem like anybody's seeking any kind of catharsis or closure, right? It's it's ongoing. It's it's going to keep going. Well, and, and I mean, I guess that's you can look at that twofold. That in one way, you know, we're never going to know what happened, and so that's never going to close all wounds uh, until the whole story could get out. But then the other part of it too is, in a way, what we're all doing, what the house is doing, in in running tours and being a bed and breakfast, you know that having that mystery continue and having that activity continue is is beneficial it's what we want to have happen you know we don't ever want to go in there and solve it because then if we go back there the next time there might not be so much activity 
Right. So, I mean, it's 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 a double-edged sword when when you get into it. But, for, I mean, for Bridget's role, though, I mean, she like you said, she got as far away from there as she could once everything was over and done with with the trial, uh, and she ended up actually moving out of state and, and getting married, didn't she? Yeah, they they say she um, married a man named John Sullivan and um, married him, but didn't have any issue from the marriage. And there's now the photograph that um, came to light a few years ago that's supposed to be her in her elder years with him. Um, yeah, she does not look like a happy individual in in the in the photograph, and. You know, one of the things I started wondering, and I decided not to include it, was, was Bridget Sullivan maybe a little bit um, simple-minded? Because if you remember from the court transcripts, there's a moment where she was being shown a photograph of the back wall of the house, like what you would see in the, in the back by the barn. And the attorney was pointing to the third-floor window and, and was saying, now, is this your bedroom window? And she just couldn't seem to identify it that way. Like there was something, some kind of spatial concepts that were just eluding her at that point. And she just literally couldn't confirm or deny that that was her window. And, of course, when you look at the back wall of the house, there's only two possible windows that it could be, hers and and the one with the bedroom next to it. Uh, So I actually posed that to another um, Lizzie Borden researcher to say, like, what, what do you think? And she said, yeah, I think she was illiterate. She wasn't very um, lettered or clever. And Which wouldn't have been I, uncommon. I wanted my character to be clever. I mean, that, um, or at least to have a foundation of intelligence to navigate through all of these events. So I chose to kind of let that go. Um, but I'm curious what, what you think about, about that, because I'm sure you've, you've trolled through these lines of transcript as, as much as I have, if not way more. Um, do you have a sense of her as a um, a scheming kind of person who kind of buttoned her lip to get um, Lizzie's approval and maybe even some kind of financial reward the, the, keeping her mouth closed? Or do you see her more as somebody who is kind of victimized by her own um, inability to comprehend the things that were happening around her? I, I never got the sense that she was, um, you know, simple-minded. I thought that she was probably uneducated because that was just the plight of many Irish immigrants of that time. Uh, I think my, my sense has always been that whether she knew anything about the murders in advance, which some people speculate that she did, uh, and then if that was the case, uh, and even if it wasn't the case, I think she just was not really all that sad to see Andrew and Abby go because of the way that she was treated. So I think she was probably perfectly fine with somebody taking an axe to them, whoever did it. And I'm sure that there was probably some discussion that if, you know, the trial went Lizzie's way, she would be taken care of. She would get a nice severance package. Yeah, there's that um, legend that she was given money to return to Ireland and, and see her family and maybe even purchase a farm for her financially struggling family. Um, I don't know. It's so interesting. And I also think, too, that uh, the the notion that uh, that she kind of suffered as a result of this is 
uh, a, a little bit of a, a misnomer too because she probably got some notoriety out of what was going on by being part of the trial. So I wouldn't have been surprised if, and again, you know, it doesn't surface now, but it could be out there somewhere that she wasn't giving newspaper interviews to people later on after the fact, that people weren't tracking her down and, and, and talking to her about this story. And then we would maybe have a, a better idea of who she was as a person and, and how she could, uh, how she could carry herself based on what she would have told that person. But because that's not something that's related to the trial or what have you, it doesn't show up in these historical tomes that we have that uh, kind of bring all that stuff together into one piece. Yeah, I regret that we don't know more about her. Um, one small detail I remember was that she sort of dolled herself up, purchased a new dress, and, and looked fine in the courtroom, which is kind of interesting. You know, it shows that she was she wanted to look well, Um and one of the saddest parts of the transcript for me was when the courtroom laughed at her for her brogue, and she was talking about the the keys that Mr. Borden left on the um, on the mantelpiece, but she was pronouncing it case, like case on the shelf. And the attorney said, "What case? What are you talking about?" She said, "No, sir, the case." Um, and everybody laughed when they realized she was saying keys, not case, like a briefcase or something. Um, and I just think, like, gosh, for her socioeconomic status to be laughed at by and ridiculed by everybody in that courtroom must have just felt so humiliating. Um, and then the other thing about the maids that I'm really wishing people had, um, you know, in 1892 and in 1893 had followed up on was the previous maid, Maggie, why was she not questioned and um, interviewed? Because she she left the house and in fact, she had such an impact on the on the boarding girls that they, or the boarding women, I should say, that they called Bridget Maggie the previous maid's name. Uh, there was clearly something to Maggie's influence in that house. Well, and, but, um, but maybe would dearly love to know more about her and why she left. Maybe that was the case, but maybe that was also just as a way to disrespect Bridget to say, you know, you matter so little to us. We're not even going to bother to learn your name. We're just going to call right. you by the name of the previous maid because we already learned her name and why to learn a new name. You're just the help. Right. You're interchangeable. Yeah, that, that could have been a big part of it, especially, you know, knowing Andrew and, and the way that he was, how ruthless he was in, in business dealings. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that's the way that he was with his with his help as well, that he could say, you know, I could easily get somebody else in here to do the same thing if if you don't want to just do it the way that we're going to do it. Yeah. I heard so, or I read somewhere that... um. Bridget did try several times to quit, and Mrs. Borden always talked her into staying. Well, I mean, it's... It's just tragic. It's probably a cushy gig if you're going to be a maid, because most of the maids that were working, I would assume, were working in much larger houses. Uh, you know, you just you have this guy who is very well off, who chooses to live in this smaller house and, and not to have indoor plumbing and all this stuff. Uh, even though he could have had it, he just chose to live more frugally. So if you're going to be a maid, I mean, you've... I don't want to say you have it made because that's a terrible pun, mm. but it's it's a little bit easier to be cleaning that house as opposed to one that would be twice the size. And, uh, yeah, and it's totally. Still and in dealing fact, the, the women of the house did their own um, straightening of their own chambers, so right. her work was much less than it could have been. On the other hand, she had to serve each meal separately to the Borden women and then Mr. and Mrs. Borden. So for each meal, she was you know, serving clear, serving clear, which doubled her work with meal serving and the other thing about it too is 
that uh, if you are her and you are dealing with all of the stuff that's going on, I mean, again, you, you'd have to look and see how savvy she was, and you'd have to know a little bit more about her as a as a person. But she could have easily been, you know, even though all this stuff is is what we know about her, she could have been living the life of Riley to some degree by playing each other, playing them off of each other, mm-hmm. because she she was probably the one who that they went to and complained about the other one because she's just background noise and she's never going to say anything to anybody else. So all these all this drama that was going on uh, amongst the family members, she was privy to all that and probably asked for, you know, what she thought about things and could use that way to, you know, use all that information to manipulate herself into a a slightly better position. Yeah, maybe so. And yeah. she could also threaten blackmail because she was gossiping with the um the neighbors made over the fence on a regular basis, and um, she, as we've talked about at the beginning of the hour, we we think she heard a lot of things in the house that they probably didn't want her to hear, as well as some of the things that they did want to. Um, I think that's really interesting what you're saying, that they may have gone to her and vented and tried to gain a little um, uh, solace from her. Um, and gain her opinion and her her backing up of you're right and they're wrong. Um, so yeah, she definitely was a repository of a lot of information. I mean, look at it like this. Uh, and and again, you'd have to refresh my memory from the court transcripts and from what what's out there. But uh, did they ever address if it was uncommon for uh, Abby to have been in the guest room at the time of the murders and and making the bed and 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 doing housework in that in that room? Uh, was that something that would have been normal because I could kind of piece together a, a, an idea as to why she might have been doing that if it wasn't common, because uh, supposedly the, the one of the theories is that John Morse, the uncle, came to visit because he was involved in some business dealing where a house that uh, – who hit the microphone? You all right? It was that me. was a hard hit. You okay? It wasn't a hard hit. I scraped it. Oh, it sounded like – I didn't like, even feel it. It, it sounded like weird. you hit it hard. No. Uh, but uh, so there's – the idea that he was coming to help with a business dealing where there was a piece of property that Emma and Lizzie thought they were getting to be like their little moneymaker for themselves, and they find out that it's, that it's going to uh, Abby instead. You know, is this something that Bridget was privy to? And she said, well, you know, if you don't want me to go tell the, the girls about what's going on, you go make the beds. <laughs> I love that. It's That's possible. Great. I had not heard that theory that Bridget should have been the one putting the pillowcases on the guest room bed and that she might have put her feet up and said, well, you go do it. But um, but but telling her to do that because it puts her in that room at that time, you know, yes. that's that could be part of it as well. Yeah, I, I could see that. And uh, apparently John Moore showed up um, with little to no notice and without a suitcase. And um, I had also heard that he was occasioned to sleep in the third floor um, that second bedroom up there next to Bridget. So I, I'm I'm unclear why he would choose to use the room that they had been using as a sewing room, as opposed to the um, to the bonus room. On I the see. Floor. I I was so under the impression. So many questions and so few answers and a lot of conjecture. I was under the impression that that third floor, with the exception at the time of the murders, with the exception of Bridget's room, that the rest of it was all storage area. Yeah, that's. I think the main floor, floor print of the house was storage. Um, so I know he slept there sometimes, but maybe that was only because the guest room was now a crime scene. 
I would have to go back and double check that. Yeah, you may be right that he was only there in that second bedroom because of, uh, which is now the bathroom. And in fact, those strange cabinets in that bathroom date to it oh, being I, I a chamber rather than a, a bathroom. I didn't even think um, about that being a room. That's I would that completely went out of my head that that might have been a room at that time or it probably was a room at that time instead of I'm like but that's right next to the bathroom Mark. <laughs> I'm thinking in, I'm thinking in like 2017 spatially spatially you don't get a shower in 1892 <laughs> right I love my favorite part of that room is the uh, the little crawl space and I always ask Leanne if I can crawl in there and she's like no I just have like toilet paper and stuff in there you don't need to go in there why not like I just want to crawl around in the little crawl space room but uh, I, I opened up all those cupboards I was like this is just creepy it just feels weird oh yeah i mean there's there's just something about that house where every step that you take you feel like something's watching you over your shoulder and then speaking of bathrooms so the second floor um bathroom you know that was created for for the guest rooms of the bnb that was you know the clothes press the famous place where the uh investigating officers just only searched it to see if there was like a hidden man in there but they didn't take a look at the gowns to see if a blood-stained garment was hanging up there um and i noticed on the tour there was no mention of the of the clothes press having been there um i think that's a pretty fascinating little room that was completely overlooked and um you know to the detriment of the case i think well, I certainly encourage everybody to uh, pick up The Murderer's Made. And, uh, and again, you can get it wherever books are sold and, and online. Uh, and it will be right as you walk into Barnes & Noble coming up in, in January. But I, I encourage everybody to get the book so they can see you know, your, your um, fleshing out of the character of Bridget, to see how you connect the two stories and to, to get some of your uh, impressions and thoughts on, on who she was as a person. But you also said that you have uh, something else in the works as well. Yeah, I um, I have a book called House of Belliver, and it's a literary ghost story. It's set in an actual, like a fictionalized version of an actual house museum in Oakland, California. And in fact, when I spoke about doing an event in Oakland, it was um, in the coach house of that of that home. Um, it's the home of a former California governor at the turn of the century, and it's known to be a haunted home. And it's it's a time capsule because the governor's um, daughters lived into very old age without marrying, and they kept everything in the house the way it was. So it's really um, a house museum of preserved Victoriana. And so I created a, a novel sort of based on that, on that home, but I changed the name and changed a lot of details. And um, it's just that is a home that has... For me, it actually felt way more resonant with energy than the Lizzie Borden house did. Um, so you should hop on a plane, Tim, and come out. Um, it's a really intriguing house. So that novel is called House of Belliver, and it's sort of a reimagining of how um, the governor's son may have died in the 1800s. And then the, the current museum staff um, sees ghosts on the property, and, and they start to... I have a goth character who shows up to be a docent, and she starts to put together facts to figure out what happened to the governor's son all those centuries ago. And uh, when will that be out? Or are you still? Um, that's out now. Um, I uploaded that to Amazon. It's a um, Amazon only ebook. Oh, excellent! So people can grab that right now if they're listening. 
They could. All right. Well, I'm glad that we finally were able to, to get you on the show, Erica, and uh, and then we look forward to talking Thank with you, so you again. I, and like it's I said, a real pleasure to talk to somebody who's so into um, Lizzie Borden oh. and the story. Thank you so much. We only scratched the surface, and if you come back out this way again, let us know so that we can uh, we can meet up and we'll introduce you to some of those ghosts over there. Oh, I would love that. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, and uh, we will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Tim. Good Have night. Good night. That is uh, Erica Mailman. Again, you can pick up the book uh, pretty much anywhere that books are sold. It is called The Murderer's Made, a Lizzie Borden novel, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's Like I said, it's a beautiful book. So I'll put it right there and try not to spill my soda on it. So, uh, we, I mean, we've all been. You've been to Lizzie Borden's, right? Yes, several times. I, have I ever been there with you? Have we ever been no. there together? Yeah, well, we were there when a film was showed, but neither of us were in the house when they were filmed. Or at least I wasn't at the same point okay. as you. Yeah, yeah, we both filmed there, but yeah. we didn't we didn't show up at the same yeah. time, right? So um, we'll have to get over there and check it out sometime together. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Like yeah. I said, I've been there a few times. A friend, I've been there with a friends group that we have a mutual friend, um, Big Jim Jones, mm-hmm. and he invited me. He rented the house out for two nights, and we went there. And you know, I've with all the times that I've been there, I've never really had a substantial experience that's jumped out. I mean, I've had a couple of weird things happen, um, but nothing substantial that makes me, you know, go, oh, my God, it's, you know, got to be this or got to be that. And the, the we've investigated other places together mm-hmm. and had some pretty strange experiences. Yes. <laughs> so I can only imagine what would happen when we were there at the Lizzie Borden it house. Would be interesting. Knowing what our, our track record seems to be. And of course, your next time being at the Lizzie Borden, I will be away down in, where am I going to be? Staying? New Jersey. New Jersey. That's You're welcome. <laughs> well, but you know, you know how it works. We sneak in there all the time when, during the winter. I shouldn't yes. say sneak. I mean, we have permission. Yes. Yeah, no. But <laughs> when there's slow nights in the, in the winter for both us and the house, you know, usually we try to get over there and do some stuff because it's, it's, it's kind of an ongoing long-term case study for us because it's not like we're, you know, some, paranormal group that just comes right. you know one time and 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 never comes back again and, well just because they save you know they live somewhere else they save right. up the money to rent out the house for the night that's their one time doing yep. lizzie board and they move on you know we have the access to it all the time so we keep a running mm-hmm. diary of everything that's going on there right we have a great relationship with the owner she's a great friend of ours and i enjoy going i enjoy doing our events but i really enjoy when the house is completely quiet and nobody else is there i like just if i go over and get a vizoni's pizza i just go over there and eat it we know how you feel about the pizza the pizza's outstanding. From where? Vizzoni's, right, 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 right around the, the corner street. from Lizzie yeah. Gordon's. You have to drive by it in order to get there. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever been able to sit down and enjoy the pizza. I think I've always just shoved it in as fast as possible. And so, started- well, listen, I've had time, and I just shove it in my mouth because it's, <laughs> it's just that good. And, uh, and, and even better is if you go to Vizzoni's to eat there. And I can plug Vizzoni's all we want because we're only streaming on the internet, the, so I'm, um, I'm not giving away free advertising. The only time I was there was when you took way too long to um, talk to the people that worked there, and I was going to move your car to a different parking spot, so that way when you walked out, you thought it was gone. It, they they do love me <laughs> over there. <laughs> yep. We're, we're, hey, we're some of their best customers. We tell everybody, right. like anybody that says I'm having an event at Lizzie Borden's, right. I will send them a message. Like on Facebook or whatever, oh, and I'll say, if you're going to order food, make sure you get Vizzoni's yeah. Pizza because I like to just keep throwing that guy the mm-hmm. business because he's local and he gives everybody a great discount and it's uh, and it's really good pizza. That's hysterical. So anyway, speaking of pizza, which we yeah. usually have at paranormal events. Yes. 
let's get into this topic a little bit because for those of you who are not familiar, uh, and we've had John on uh, quite a bit in recent months as he has been putting his new business together and uh, now Bright Star Promotions is in full swing. He represents certain talent, both in the paranormal field and out of the paranormal field. Yes. Uh, but he is also, uh, John, pay attention to our cameras more than hers. <laughs> we have, Spooky TV takes precedence. Which one is even pointing no, at No, if him? he has to move, we'll just no, move. No, no, we'll this move. one is. Yeah, we can just move oh. it. Across. I'm just, you can still see him. Yeah. I'm just giving over. him crap. I'm just giving you him crap. You are ridiculous. So He's the, jealous. The uh, I'm not jealous. I can go on Facebook Live and blow you guys away right now. <laughs> I tagged How you. How can you be jealous? Look at the beard. Stop it. So uh, the the uh, talent portion is that you know you represent this talent and you book them into conventions. You book them into uh, different you know different types of events. You basically find them the gigs that they are using for their income. You are the Correct. you are the intermediary between them and the event organizers, which is something you've been doing for a long time. Yes. It's not it's something that's new under this banner. Yes. But you have been doing for many years just without any kind of formal for friends, right. you know, referring, you know, cuz I've been around for a while and I've met a lot of great owners of conventions, events. So if somebody calls me and says, hey, you know what, how can you, do you know this person, can you get them, I'm trying to have them for my event, absolutely, I'm going to, you know, work the deal for them, and this is before I even put Bright Star Promotions out there, so it's it's nothing new to me, it's just under a new title to do it the correct way. And the other part of it is that you also have been putting together events, because it, that is also something that you've been doing for a long time, just not under this banner, mm-hmm. where... You would you were running tours in the Bridgewater and the uh, Freetown State, State Forest, Forest, and you've done other events that you've been helping out with mm-hmm. and and kind of doing stuff behind the scenes. So that was when you were putting together Bright Star. That was something that you wanted to put under that umbrella was having more paranormal events. Absolutely. And the problem with that <laughs> is that when. See, and a lot of people don't understand this because Spooky South Coast puts on events, Legend Trips, which is currently on hiatus because of Jeff's schedule. You know, we put on events as well, and it's very confusing to a lot of people who's doing what, especially when a lot of the guests that are at these events will do multiple events. If they don't have their own company banner, you know, they'll go out and they'll do a lot of other events. Pretty much the way that it goes is if somebody wants to have me come and do one of their events, and we can make everything work out financially because, you know, time is money for people and yep. travel expenses and all that, that if it works out, I'll go do it. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to run my own events, but it also gives me a chance Branch to go out, out and meet new people yep. and go to places I wouldn't have normally gone to. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that's part of the appeal of doing events for the quote-unquote Paris celebrities is because they get to go out and meet people face-to-face they get to go to places that they either have been to before and want to go back to again or have never been to at all. And if you're a Jason Hawes, you know, if you're uh, Amy Bruni, who I know runs her own events, but, you know, if you're somebody who's going and doing one of these big events, the beauty part of that is you get to go and be part of the event and not have to do all the legwork. Yes. So you don't have to be the one running around, putting everything together, making all the arrangements. Somebody just tells you you're on this flight at this time, a car will pick you up, will drive you to the hotel, and then somebody will pick you up and bring you to the event Yep. if all works out well. And so that is a bonus for people. So they, they like to, to do these different events. And, but the other part of it is a lot of this money that is generated from these events 
a good portion of it goes back to the locations yes. to keep them open and to keep them running. But for a lot of these celebrities, it's part of their income. This is true, too. Because if you want to make your life being available to the fans all the time, then something has to pay the bills yes. for that to happen. Yeah, you can't have a regular job and be there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. Monday, you know, or even sometimes I know there's certain people that do events on Tuesdays and th- Wednesdays and Thursdays. So you can't be there and have a regular job too. So that has to come somehow. You have to make that decision to say, uh, you know, I'm going to do this full time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But you can't serve two masters in that regard because you don't want to be the guy that can only show up Saturday mm-hmm. and then, you know, spend however many time you can and then have to fly out because whether it's fair or not, you get a reputation as a guy that doesn't want to be there for the whole time. Yes. Or woman. I don't mean to, to specifically point out either, either gender. But the other problem that comes with these events is that people look at what is being done and say, I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do that. Uh, I don't see anything special to what he's doing. And they don't realize the legwork that goes into all the other stuff. The legwork and, and also the money behind it mm-hmm. to, to front up that has to go to the celebrities. It has to go to the location, um, celebrities' flights, their hotels. People don't realize what kind of money that is. And, and it's the other problem with it, in addition to all the money that, like, they don't realize the, the, insurance that goes into it you know if you have an event where you put on food that is not only the extra cost of food which is when you're feeding 40 50 60 people it's not cheap not only that extra cost but now that actually adds on to your insurance yes because now there's the possibility that somebody could have a food allergy or choke or any of that so that's going to drive up the price and once upon a time we used to be able to go online and get these event insurance binders for you know like 150 bucks Mm -hmm. but then the event company, the insurance companies caught on to exactly what we were doing, and they said, "Well, now wait a minute. The liability of walking around in the dark is a lot more. You know, it's, it, it, there's a lot more potential there for problems. So we're going to up it. So now we're paying three, four hundred dollars yes. for event insurance. So right off the top, between whoever's handling your your sales, your insurance company, the location, all that." You know, all that stuff goes into that. And then paying the people who actually show up and go and, you know, making sure that you have all the, the equipment that you need and even mm-hmm. just batteries. Yep. You know, things things like that. People don't take all that into account. But anyway, so what happened recently is the – it's fair to say the biggest company for putting on these events just ran into some major problems. Yes. I would definitely say that by far they were the biggest and the longest running for – quite some time with the biggest celebrity names that would be at for the paranormal field that would be at their events because they came out oh more than 10 years ago yes i believe it was Mm -hmm. somewhere around 2001 2002 when they did the first event so they were doing events before ghost hunters was even on tv um when when was 2004 was ghost hunters okay then 2005 would have been their first event that's when i first heard of idea was probably because i know that uh you know the the ghost hunters guys tried to do their own events mm-hmm. for a while under their own banner, and that's how I first started talking with Amy back way back then when she used to run events for them. And this was just an easier format for them because with their schedule they couldn't put together the events mm-hmm. and go through all that. So 
So, but ever since then, you know, if you see these big events where it's Jason Hawes, you know, Steve Gonzalez, Dave Tango, all, you know, all the, the big stars, Chris Williams was doing sure. them, Grant was doing them, and you see all these big names doing them, it was probably run by Ideal. At one point in time, it definitely was. Um, you know, if you've seen any paranormal events from, we'll say 2005 up until about 2016, seven, just 16, it was run by them for the most part with all the big, big names. Every once in a while, you'd find a, a smaller event company that might pop in one of the big names and, you know, just to have somebody there. But for the most part, it was them. And when they were doing these events, they were going all over the place. And back then, the, the prices were a lot higher. I mean, the prices have gone down because they, instead of having five or six people at an event, they would have two or three. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the ticket prices were very high, and, and people would always say it's a different experience than what maybe Spooky South Coast or Legend Trips or, or groups like that are offering, where when we do an event, we say we don't want to bring a bunch of celebrities. Mm-hmm. We want people to focus on the location and just have a good time investigating, yep. and which is fine. That's just our preferred method of doing it. But with ideal events, you know, there is very much that hanging out with a celebrity, meet and greet, get an autograph aspect as much as it was also an investigation. Yes. And so, long story short, the person who was running Ideal uh, got into some financial trouble. Hmm. Just a little bit. So you can say that. Just uh, a little. Well, listen, you know, there's, if there's legalities involved and everything, we have to say that everything is kind of, I guess we can say a good portion of the stuff is alleged at this point, but at the same time, you are also on the inside and you are involved with some of the clients and the locations and the, and the events that have gone on. Mm-hmm. So you actually know, uh, the whole story as well. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to a point that you have clients, locations and other events that would contract clients through this company, through ideal event, and they come to you and tell you, this is how much is owed, this is what's owed, this is how much he screwed us up for, he didn't pay us for this, he didn't refund us on this person. You know, that that's pretty crazy when you start hearing it from month, multiple, multiple locations. Um, I was contacting locations just recently to book for our events for Bright Star Promotions. And as I'm talking to one of them, they're telling me, oh, he's owed us for three past events. Um then he just booked one and decided to disappear and take everybody's money from that event. And the event hasn't even happened yet and left those people all hanging. And that's problematic because a lot of these locations, I mean, many of the, a lot of, there was a good amount of them that really only worked with them. Yes. And, and there's a good amount of them that, believe it or not, besides the average, you know, tour revenue that might come in from the daily people that show up, they actually, relied on doing two mm-hmm. events or three events a year because the money is pretty substantial. Right. You know, certain places do charge two or $3,000. I mean, I know that a, a very, very historical location, um, very, very haunted, one of the most haunted ones out there, is almost $5,000 a day to rent it for a paranormal event. You know, when you do that four times a year, that's $20,000 for them. Right. And, uh, you know, let's just say you pay a part-time security guard mm-hmm. to, to patrol the pl- place at night. Well, those events are paying for your security all year. Yep. You know, and, and one of the issues that comes about from this is if they are a location that only works with this one company, 
they're going to be gun shy now about working with another company, yes. or even if they are somebody that has worked with others in the past, you know, this is going to kind of make them reevaluate what it is that's going on. So just the fact that this happened, first of all, hurts not only the people who have been purchasing tickets to the events, not only the people who are owed money, but it's also hurt the reputation of everybody else that might have never even stepped foot into that place yet. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've, again, because of doing this for so long, I've gotten to know quite a few of the owners of the locations and reaching out to some of them, they said, John, we don't have a problem with you, but we are a little gun shy on doing any more events. We don't know if we want to do it because of what's happened. And, and that really sucks for everybody all the way around, not just for me, for anybody that wants to even go and investigate the place mm -hmm. or maybe put on a smaller event, you know, than what I would do. It's still, it's not good for them either because, you know, now this ruined everybody's chances of getting into these great locations. And, uh, we can talk about this because they put it out on social media. Uh, so we, it's not like we're talking about, you know, inside business stuff nope. that we know that the public wouldn't know, but some of these big name celebrities are owed tens of thousands of dollars in money that they haven't gotten. And that is, you know, what you're basically doing is you're putting them in a financial position where they might have to say, well, I have to go get a job now mm -hmm. just to make men's meet for my family. I can't wait for the next event to come up. And so then they have to go find another avenue for income. And now they're taken off the circuit. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's, I've, from, from what I've been told and what I know, it's upwards of two to three hundred thousand dollars of what he's taken from clients, from venues, and from other events like big paracons that go on that he's taken his deposits and not fulfilled his agreement to have the client there but refused to give him the refund. So back. just to just to break it down for people that uh, might not be aware, for some of these bigger ones, yep. instead of the people who are in charge of putting together all of the things involved with this, uh you know, just like what you would do for for like a Comic-Con or something, yep. they will contact a talent manager mm -hmm. and say, "Who do you have that yep. we can bring to this?" and then you just deal with that one person and that one person deals with you know, making the arrangements for everybody else and for paying everybody else and all that. Yeah, kind of like a middleman, basically. Right. Um, and that's and that's what he was doing for these other bigger conventions. And unfortunately, he was not fulfilling what should have been done. So, and again, this is not, we're not bashing no. anybody here. We're just stating the facts that are out there, just so that people are aware of the background of the story. Because that is, that's bad enough. But you would think that that only affects that company. But unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, if McDonald's gets found out to have horse meat in their burgers. And Don't say that. We Don't. both love the number two. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> well, the number two is donkey, so <laughs> it's a little bit better. But As long as it doesn't have pickles on it. Eat but uh, if you... <laughs> we're on YouTube, I can say that. I love it. I'm going to die. But uh, if if we uh, if we if McDonald's gets caught serving horse meat, what happens to Burger King and Wendy's? I mean, there might be some portion of the population that mm -hmm. says, "Well, geez, if McDonald's is serving horse meat, I wonder what Wendy's and Burger King are serving." But there'll also be a good portion of the public that will say, "I'm not going to McDonald's anymore, but I'm still going to go get fast food, so I'm going to go to Wendy's or Burger King." Mm -hmm. So it will actually increase their mm -hmm. uh, sales, and let's—I mean, let's even go so far as to say, 
you know, McDonald's is suffering so bad that Burger King comes out with their own version of the Big Mac. And so basically they're offering the same thing, and th- that will draw people even more. Uh, so the the point of this is is that that's, you know, brand identity is a thing. Absolutely. And brand identity separates a lot of other businesses from other businesses and most other, uh, most other commercial ventures. But in the paranormal world, it's not so easy to have that brand identity because people look at these, the cross-pollination of guests, mm-hmm. the cross-pollination of locations. Nine times out of ten, people might not even know which company they paid for when they ordered, which company they paid when they ordered a ticket online. There's a good chance. Absolutely. You know, that they're just, they're like, I want to go to this event with these people, click, yep. I will buy. Yep. And so it causes a lot of problems when somebody gets a bad reputation like this. And the other thing, I mean, we've talked in the past before about how people who come in and just run events poorly, mm. just aren't prepared, don't know what they're doing, how that hurts everybody. But when you have somebody that's outright scamming people out of money, yep. you know, that's that's something that is, is the people who run events poorly, for the most part, they just hurt people that run events well. Yeah. Somebody who runs a fraud, runs an event that's a fraud is hurting the credibility of everybody. Yes. Even the person that just picks up a K2 meter and goes into a haunted location to investigate on a Saturday night. Yep. has their own reputation hurt by this. Oh, absolutely. Because in a field where people are struggling to have any kind of credibility, anything like this will call that into question. So now that actually ends up happening with you. Now, in full disclosure, you have been involved at Ideal Events in the past. Yes. Um, I was an actual talent on Ideal Event because of appearing on the different TV shows that I have, one-off episodes here, one-off episodes there. I had had an agreement that I was represented by them. They would ask me to come to their events, um, which I became very good friends with them, just like every of the other talent that I have on my roster was very good friends with them. And we would go there and we would do what we were told. You know, um, We would sit in a certain location. The groups would rotate around. A lot of times because I was the little peon on the tree, believe it or not, I was little, yeah. even though not physically. Physically not little, yes. but in terms of importance, <laughs> yes. a weird oxymoron. You're right. Sure you want to do that? It, well, it's true. <laughs> um, more, with John, it's more of a pee up. Yeah. You know, okay. <laughs> we got to hope for that rainbow effect. <laughs> um, but I would go there, and this gentleman would have us there from Ideal Events, and they would he would kind of ask me if I would organize the whole changing of the shifts every hour, make sure people got to the right location, stick around with one group, ask them how they were doing, if they are enjoying the night. And it also helps that you're seven feet tall and people listen to you. Yes, that does. So it worked out very well. Um, But needless to say, that's where my involvement was. I wasn't part owner of the business. I wasn't a manager, vice president, nothing like that. I didn't get paid to do any of that except my normal fee to be there, Um, just like I pay any of my clients. And so with this news about what's happened with Ideal and the fact that you have done events with them in the past, somehow there was a website, Facebook page, whatever it is, that uh, decided to put out a story. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to use their name because basically I'm not going to give them any publicity for it. But uh, if we continue this discussion, you know, we'll invite them onto the, onto the show as, at a later date. But this... Story comes out on on I saw it on Facebook and I'm I'm sure that that's where most people have read it. Big headline, you know, fraud exposed, paranormal. I don't even remember the exact headline, but the picture is a picture of Steve Gonzalez, yep. and it just says fraud, fake, all this stuff yep. all over it. So, as a journalist myself, that is immediately problematic 
because, see, if, if I write a story about a guy that gets pulled over for drunk driving, my boss in the newsroom, the news director, will not allow me to just use a generic, you know, uh, uh, stock photo of somebody getting pulled over by a police officer and use that as a featured image on our website. Because he will say, people will think that that's the person that got pulled over and that's not accurate. Yep. You know, there's, there's got to be, you have to be able to look at that picture and say, this is definitely related to the story, or look at it and say, that's just a, a generic photo. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this image was created in a way that it was implicating that Steve was the fake. And that. I think it was done intentionally to hurt Steve. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Along people are just scrolling else. through. Yep. They're seeing in, Steve in Gonzalez a world fake. full of clickbait right now. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what the author of this particular article was trying to accomplish. Yep. So that that from the beginning is problematic. You read the story, which is poorly written, of course. <laughs> and then listen, if you're going to take shots at somebody, yeah. at least run your story through goddamn spell check first. It might make you I look a little it. bit more intelligent. You know, oh, people were actually commenting that on in the post. I love seeing it. It There's, was funny. I like the grammar police. They're my favorite. You yes. can't go after somebody if you, you know, if you don't have all your ducks in a row first. But the the other problem with it is when you read the story, a lot of it's just rehashing what the Kling brothers wrote mm-hmm. and and kind of just sharing the story that everybody knows. The story itself, the way that I read it, did not bring your name into it. No. I did not realize at the time that I had read something that had already been edited. And that originally the story did try to say that your business, Bright Star Promotions, was just ideal under a different name. Yes. Basically, that's what they, they did. They they said that the gentleman that owned Ideal had his website had disappeared, his Facebook page, all his information had disappeared, and that he was now working with me trying to run Bright Star Promotion under the new name instead of running it under ideal so that way we could scam them. And then also went on to scream and complain about 10 other things. It's just, it's crazy. I have nothing to do with ideal anymore. I left them in 2015. Um, I started this business in 2016. He, he continued to do business up until the week before Halloween. That's when I broke this story. I was one of the ones that was not hiding anything, not working anything out, you know, out to do anything except help people. When I found out about it, it was because I was trying to get payment for two of my clients that he hired for me to do an event. After chasing him down, chasing him down, getting other people involved, I finally received a payment and it did actually go through. That's when I was told that there was no more money that nobody else could get paid because now I'm trying to help out collect money for other clients right, of mine. Right, because you were able to make the contact. Exactly, even though I wasn't booking them and I didn't handle it. I was trying to get payment for them people, and that's when I was told that there was nothing left, that all the money was gone. So then I reached out to my clients and I told them. So I was warning everybody ahead of time, and then it all came crashing down two weeks later that everything that I was warning these people about was 100% true. And, and you get roped into this here. And what, what bothered me about what was going on is there was some stuff, there was definitely some untruths mm-hmm. in some of the comments that were being posted under the story that were unfairly attacking you and your business. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you are going to these events because you want to hang out with people like Jason Hawes and Amy Bruni, then 
wouldn't you want to listen to Amy Ha, uh, Amy Haas, Amy <laughs> Bruni and Jason Hawes when they're actually defending John and telling you the truth? But yeah. instead, people are still fighting it. And basically what they're, they're, they're trying to, and I could tell because you can tell when a comment is, is a plant. Mm. Oh can, my God. You can yes. tell when a comment is just trolling. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I was noticing is that this stuff was kind of getting directed at you. And the story shouldn't be about you. No. It should be about what Ideal did to people yeah. and warning people about that. I don't know why your name had to get brought into it once you were told, you know, once you mm-hmm. informed them that this is not the case. Mm-hmm. I have nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> let me, let me state that first and foremost um yes i am represented by bright star promotions but i was never represented by ideal event management but i do know people that were a lot of my friends got hurt bad and i watched john work very hard to help protect a lot of those people and to help them and give them information that they didn't otherwise have and he has done nothing but be kind to everyone and to help them out and to we it's it's no surprise they're um, and it's public. Uh, Barry and Brad Kling put out a very long post. Describing, and that was really the first way that it yes, hit the public yes. was through what they wrote. Because of them, it got out there. And I applaud them for trying to Absolutely. help everybody. And John was in a very tough position with his new company. And I even advised him not to go out on the record to bash another company. Because one company bashing another company, whether somebody did wrong or right or it doesn't matter or it's com- competition, looks terrible. We, we were talking about it last night over, yes. over a text. We said the only time that that's ever worked was for Coke and Pepsi. Correct. That was the only time it's ever worked to bash your competition and not look stupid for doing it. And jokes on everybody because Coke and Pepsi were clearly working together with the Pepsi Challenge. So, either way. I'll tell you a story about the Pepsi Challenge someday off the air. All right. It's just, it's just a funny... Sounds really fun, dirty. No, it's just a funny, it's a funny story how I pissed off the guy running the challenge. Awesome. But either way, one company bashing another company never does any good for anyone. No. And I advised him not to do this, but to contact people directly, which he did. Barry and Brad came out. They did what they did. It was very extensive with inside which knowledge. Which is their right to do so. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Especially because they were screwed. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, yes. So that was already out in the public for weeks. There was no reason for this article to come out and to do what it it did or to say what it said because it was already out there from two para celebrities not from a ghostwriter on a fake website and all that article did in my personal opinion and many other people that i've spoken to was to target john and to target his company because he is competition for somebody else well and that's where things get really interesting because (laughs) if you go through this website or this facebook page what have you and you see what's they've been reporting on, and I use reporting loosely. There, so there's this story that's bashing Ideal and, and a roundabout way bashing Bright Star right. Promotions as well. And then just a couple of posts prior to that is a puff piece for another Correct. company, <laughs> which also, by the way... It's a million-dollar company, didn't you know Multi, that? multi. It, multi-million. It reads, it reads like, a, like a press release <laughs> more than yes. it does an, any kind of objective story. But... So, but hey, I'm not I'm not making any kind of judgment no. about this business. I don't know anything about them. I don't know how they run their operation. People that I know that have gone on their events have said that they are wonderful events. Uh, people that I am friends with have worked their events, and so you know I'm not I'm not bashing them in any way. I'm saying that it takes the credibility out of the writer that's putting out this information about John if there's some sort of a relationship with this other organization. I'm not saying there definitely is. 
You know what, though? All signs point to that there is. I, I agree with you with everything that I don't, you know, I have nothing against anybody else. You've never done me wrong. Then absolutely. Even, and John, you know this, when somebody hates somebody else, I constantly, and people will try to warn me or everything else, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, get in my face about it. I will say, I will not treat them badly until they do that, that yep. to me. And yep. I remain civil. To a fault, where I've actually yelled at you at some yes. point. It's like, please, why are you there? Yeah. Why right. are you doing this? And there was, there was actually an event that if you had not, if she didn't tell me you would have been there, I would have had to drop what I was doing and drive. <laughs> because it was just, I'm not it was, stupid. it was not, but not being stupid. Right. Doesn't, also mean that sometimes you just don't get into a situation. You, I get what you're You can be the say. smartest person in the world, but there's always traps that people can fall into. Oh, totally understand. But either way, I'm not bashing anybody else. I would never do such a thing unless you've done something personally wrong to me. However, if that were me and I owned a company that had my events and my name plastered all over this website and they were bashing another company or somebody else that has done nothing wrong, I would ask for all of my stuff to be immediately removed no matter how much money that brought me from that website to not be affiliated with that because it's bad business. Bottom line, it makes you look like a jerk. So It at least creates the possibility in people's w- minds of there correct. being a, an agenda. Because what's going to mm-hmm. happen is people are going to start to turn around and blame this other company, which may or may not have anything to do with the incident. So I would have myself removed from that. I would want no affiliation with anybody that has done wrong to somebody else, period. And you know in business how many times have I made a harsh decision to cut ties with someone or something because they have done something nasty to somebody else. I do not operate like that. I would never operate like that. And it has nothing to do with me. So therefore, I'm removing myself from the entire situation. So if that were me, that's what I I would have completely done. You know, the, the, the biggest thing was we've I've talked to a lot of my clients. Some of them, like you said, made posts about it, like Amy did, which she's not my client, but she is a good friend. And again, I can't thank all the people enough that have reached out and wrote down their comments, their posts about it, and backed me. Um, but people like Amy have reached out. Jay Hawes reached out. And Jay talked to the person. And this big, long story came about it. And supposedly it was going to get fixed. Um, now it's been fixed since then. And all they did was change one little part that says from the other that company. That you own it? Yeah. That the other company is now merged with me. Basically right. they reworded it to make yeah. it sound but, like the talent came over. So they must've. But change the story to take you out of it, but then attacked you in the comments. No, no, no. They oh, didn't no. even do that. They didn't even take me they out They didn't of it. take out. Nope. It's still in it's there. It's still there. They just reworded it a little differently. Yes. Well, yes, it's crazy. It the, went from John owns ideal, and right. then ch- switching to, it to Brightstar. <laughs> ideal now, is shut down. Yep. But now Brightstar promotion and all the talent, the search for all the talent has now led them to Brightstar promotions, which still is trying to say that John has an affiliation with Ideal, yeah, and, and he just, has been nothing but transparent about his his past yep. with working for Ideal as talent, just like all the other Paris celebrities have done. But it still continues to bash John about his. Um, current status as a business and he's not a legitimate business and they can't find anything and they filed a report with the attorney general. They need to go back and look. Maybe a little Google search will help them mm. as <laughs> just Google sole proprietorship and look at the legalities that come along yes. with that and well, you'll understand Listen, a lot. first of all, that's that's something that I just, we only have a couple minutes because we've yeah. already gone kind of late here, but the that, that's one of the things that I wanted to address is the the attack that is on you now is that you know that you're not uh, an officially licensed and registered business and all this and that and, and listen 
Let me just give a little bit of insight into how this all works. You don't have to be mm-hmm. to do these events. You know, we had the conversation this week about the mm-hmm. different types of business, the advantages and disadvantages of both. Some people choose to go into this doing it as a sole proprietor, proprietorship or a DBA, yep. which all that a DBA means is that just means that the business name is also you. Mm-hmm. Correct. And that's how most people are doing these events. Mm-hmm. Some people want to go the extra step because if they form an LLC or if they incorporate, it gives you a little bit more protection, uh, and especially in terms of taxes and in terms of if anything happens at an event and somebody can't sue you personally and they can only sue your company, so it's only your company's assets that are attacked and not your personal. You know, it's it's there's all these different things that are involved in it. But basically, you know, when Joe Schmo Paranormal Group decides they're going to go put on a haunted event hmm. and they charge people 60, 70, 80, 100 bucks a ticket, they're not an incorporated business. No. They're right. not an LLC. They're doing it under their own name. Yep. And if they're doing it right, they're filing all the tax paperwork, yep. is it being extra income and all that, and they're yep. buying the insurance and what have you. But there's nothing that says that you have to do that. And the reason why you're not going to see any kind of a business filing for John if he's doing it as a sole proprietorship or or as a DBA is because that would be his social security number that right. it would be under. Exactly. Not a tax ID. You don't have a tax ID when you're a sole until, you, until you form an LLC or... I mean, you can request one yes. if you want one, but for the most part, you're doing it under your own social security number, which is not going to be posted because then anybody can steal your identity. <laughs> yes. So the um, the intelligence level of people out there. Truly it, it was just, and you know what the funny thing is? Somebody actually posted that in the comment. Do you know what the sole proprietor is? And they came back. It doesn't matter. He's not listed. Well, obviously, you must not know then what a sole proprietor is. Right. You know, it just and, it, it gets me. <laughs> So, and that's, that's where my, my mind is just blown by this because you're, you're cherry picking the facts that you want that support your argument. And it just seems like it's a coordinated attack. Oh, of course it is. All the comments that are planted, any, I mean, Amy Bruni didn't have to go out of her way to, um, protect or defend another event company, but she did because she did what's right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and because Amy knows that, Bright Star Promotions and their events is not competition for Strange Escapes. No. no. It's not because you're offering a different experience yes. and Correct. something different. And people choose what it is that they want to do. And you know, and we you know what? Some know of the talent, other. right. Everybody is friends, yeah. first and foremost. And some of the talent from Strange Escapes and Bright Star overlap. Yes. And never once has either company looked at each other as competition. No. If anything, they're supportive to each other. So, and that's proven with Amy you know, putting yourself out there and even with her saying it or Jason Hawes saying it, it didn't matter. It's the, the name of the website and the Facebook page is copying the likeness that Jason Hawes operates under. Right. Mm-hmm. And even him putting himself out there, defending Bright Star did not matter to these people. They're just, it's, it's a coordinated attack. Like right. you said, the, at some point you back off. Right. If, if that's the case. And the fact that there has been no backing off, there's only two reasons why you don't back off. Mm-hmm. One is because, like we were saying, it's a coordinated attack. And the other reason is because you just don't want to admit that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Correct. And both are wrong. Yep. I'm going to go with it to the first one. But I mean, it doesn't matter. Right. Either way, you're smearing somebody else because you don't want the consequences of either of those. And, and it's funny because we all think we've narrowed it down to what it is and who it is. And 
when I spoke to that person, they basically told me things that I'm not going to repeat here, but they basically told me things that through Messenger that I have saved if it needed to be to come out. They basically told me that I need to stay where I am and they stay where they are and we won't have problems. All of a sudden, why? Right. It's, yeah. it's going to become a territorial thing. Yeah. That's the word that was used. Listen, yeah. listen. There, there's, we do events at places that sometimes we're the only ones that do events there. Correct. We would never keep somebody else from doing an event at that place. No. Not at all. Now, would we... No good company would. Would we want to, uh, you know, maybe... If it's a place that we've built a relationship with over the years that have come to trust us and they ask us questions about it, would we give them advice and give them kind of some insight? Sure, but I've never told anybody not to host somebody. But that has been done to us many times. I would never do that. Right. I would would say to somebody, well, I've never heard of them, so... I, I would be a little weary. And I don't know what to tell you. Right. I would yep. say, you know, for example, John, you did not you did events with this company. There was that company from overseas that all of a sudden was booking a million events all over the country mm-hmm. and, and booking all this talent and events that never happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. They had like 50 events booked, and I think five of them actually took place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when people are asking me about these people. I'm like, I, I don't even know who it is. Right. Yeah. I just know the name brand. I can't trace back who it goes to. Nope. So... You know, that that kind of stuff happens all the time. I, I never want to hurt somebody from being able to give people an, an experience right. and to give a location a chance to make money. Right. But at some point, you know, if you do bad business, you kind of have to get called out for doing bad business. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the only caveat I would put on anything. For the most part, I would always tell anybody, go ahead, do it. Right. I mean, how many people have held events at Waverly Hills? I think yep. every event company besides us has gone out and done a Waverly Hills event. I'm sure there will be a Bright Star one at some point. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I haven't yet, but it might be. Right. It might be in the works. The yeah. only reason we haven't done it is because we don't leave New England. <laughs> right. But, uh, but you know, that's a place where – and everybody's able to coexist and go and have their events and yep. no problems. You know, the, the, the problem comes in all this – and I, I don't want to bash anybody – Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to bash anybody Correct. and to, to drop names or anything. Oh, you know how it's killing me. But the biggest problem that's going on with these events, and it's the companies that are the ones that are causing the problems, is because they want to be the goddamn stars themselves. Mm-hmm. And these events Ridiculous. are about putting themselves yeah. out there and making themselves into something and yep. using these other celebrities as a way to do it for themselves. Yep. Correct. And that's where it's a bunch of bullshit, because that's where it's wrong. Right. That's the wrong intention for doing this. Yep. That is... You want people to come and pay $100 a ticket to hang out with somebody that they should think is famous. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and, and build up something for yourself. And it, it and it's not it's not even like they're trying to make it financial for themselves either. It, it's no, just they that they, the they just want the attention. Yep. And that's Which wrong. Which is gross. And that's wrong. And you know what? I, I got to say, for all of you quote-unquote celebrities out there that do this and get involved in these people, you're just as much to blame when shit goes wrong because you are the ones that allowed your celebrity to make them into something. Mm -hmm. You have to be aware of your own brand. You have to know who it is that you are associating yourself with. And it's okay to say, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know. But at some point, it's on you for not doing your homework. That's why you have a guy like John that knows who these people are, you know, that can say... Good or bad, you know, you they can say you couldn't. You couldn't be more correct about that because 
let's 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 even take one step away from that. There was an event that Stephanie and Porter were at that I got them booked at in Texas. Literally right beside it, there was a big fight between partners and the event split up and they decided to do the partner that's left decided to do an event. I told clients of mine, do not go to that event. I'm not booking you there. Come to the one that Stephanie and Porter is going to be at. It's it's much better run. The owner's trustworthy. I got calls that weekend because they went through one of their other agents and got booked there. I got calls that weekend while we were there. I'm headed home. I'm leaving. It's halfway through the convention. They can't afford to pay us. They they our food wasn't here. They didn't do this. That's that's what I'm here for to know those things and know those people. Listen to me once in a while. I know what I'm talking about. I mean, I can go a step further and say that that event was in Texas, and I cannot say enough nice things about. He, he's the actually promoter. in the chat. Yes, um, Apple's was, event down in Texas was amazing. He's he like, it's phenomenal. really, it was really good. Please invite me back. <laughs> no, I mean, no. honestly, like, I mean, he and his wife were just amazing yes, people, and just so hospitable and and kind and generous, and everything was run so smoothly. But that's so, how it should be. It's right. not. It's not a competition. No. You know, no. everybody has their own voice and everybody has their own way of doing things. You know, there's, there's, I'm going to go cover the Patriots game tomorrow. Yep. And there's going to be, you know, 200 different writers that are there covering the same exact game and we're all going to yep. write a story about it. And I'm not trying to make anybody read my story over somebody else's. Right. You know, you find the stories that you like, you find the voices that you like, you find the experiences that you like and, and the people that you connect with. And, you know, would we would we get upset if we have regulars that come to our events? Do we get upset if they go to somebody else's event? No, go have a good time. I mean, do I get upset if you know we have an event and it's like the first time that we ever get into a place and the place is really cool, but they had already booked to go to another event that's the same night? It's disappointing. I'm like, I'm like that kind of sucks. Yep. But you know, it's I never say, well, you know, you're our customer and you should yep. be coming to our event. You're our person. You know, the, yep. that's and people get that way. They do. They and do. And it just it. No, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's not its not easy. It's not something anybody can do. So stop yeah. everybody thinking that you can. All right. That's <laughs> that's just my, my little commentary on, commentary on that. But, <laughs> but that is, I mean, I do think that that's part of the biggest problem is that people are doing this to get that celebrity rub. Absolutely. And that's right. exactly why awesome. they're doing it. I mean, I've, I've, I talked to you today about somebody like that running an event. And, you know, I, I told him I will never ever book my own stuff ever again because I just don't want to deal with that side of things. I want to know who I'm dealing with ahead of time. And I want to be able to know that the people that I'm doing business with and that I'm dealing with are, you know, legitimate people or people that are not out for the fame and fortune. And I think it's a responsibility on the celebrity as well to sit back and think, is it worth the paycheck to put your name and attach your name to people that are just out there to, you know, run everybody else over or it doesn't matter about anybody but them. Listen, we all, everybody in this room can say the same thing, but I will say yeah. this. I have friends who are celebrities. Yes. I have friends who are on TV. And right. you know what? I don't give a crap that they're on TV. That's not why I'm their friend. Yep. Love nope. you all, but no. <laughs> it's That has nothing to do with anything. Right. So if I'm hanging out with you, I'm not trying to get any kind of a rub off you right. by being associated with you. Right. And if you can pick up on who's genuine about that, like there's plenty of people who are genuine that just want to work with you and, and do good things together that yep. you don't need to deal with these people that are in it for you. I mean, and I, I guarantee you that those are the people who will be the ones that are kind of imploding right. and, and end up with a bad reputation one way or another because 
it's they're not doing it for you and they're not doing it for the customer. They're doing it for themselves. Right. And that's where this stuff tends to, to fall apart. Like, do I like to make money? Of course. We Everybody all like to does. make money. But but choosing where you get it from is the most important thing. Uh, but it's not just that either. It's when you it's I look at it like this. If I get paid to do a job, I'm paid to do a job. When I go to an event or run an event or a convention or anything like that, I I do look at it as a job because I'm getting paid to be there, but I also don't look at it as it being a job in the traditional sense. I right. look at it as everybody that's walking through that door gave me money. Mm-hmm. And they gave me money for a purpose and and I have to give back to them what they were giving me that money what for. They're expecting. Right. And because of who I am, I like to give them a little bit more than what yep. they might be expecting. Right. For that money. So and that's where it has to, to, to be that's what it has to be about. The minute it becomes about something else and something more you're going to have problems because you're going to lose sight of what the ultimate goal should be. I completely agree with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I mean, I spend my time connecting with people that are there to see me. You know, at our events, you and I don't make it through the door because we're constantly talking and having personal conversations with every single person that comes. And for me, that's what it's about when I am signed to go somewhere. And I can speak for myself at least, but I know a lot of the people that I surround myself with are the same way. Now, the, the critics say... But if they're your friends and you like seeing these people all the time and hang out with them, why do they have to come and buy a $100 ticket to be able to do that? Right. You know, n- we've never forced anybody to buy a ticket. No. We have never. Nope. And, you know, I have a lot of friends. There are people that I go to dinner with regularly that buy tickets to everywhere I go. But at the same time, and this is what I said to a location that we visited this week that we have an event lined up for for this year. I have been running events for the better part of the last decade. And with all different people and a huge part of running these events for me, at least is giving back to these historical locations and giving, um, you know, whether it's, they want a fee or they want a portion of the tickets or whatever it might be. However, it's set up with any event that I do giving back to history is Mm -hmm. so important to me. And we've done plenty of events where we helped keep the heat on for the winter for an event. Uh, location that was not getting any money and funding whatsoever. That's important to me. Helping people and helping history is important. To when me. when the events that we do are part of their annual budget. Yep. You know that's when you know yes. that you're making an impact. Yep. Just want to address two quick comments in the chat okay. room. Uh, one is the uh, Maddie mentioned about it being time for power unity. Power unity <laughs> is a myth. I don't want to get involved yes. in all no, that right now yes. because just, just we've already gone overboard. But let's just say it's there's that. never going right. to be unity. There just has to be respect. You know, I agree. Burger King, Burger King and McDonald's don't work together, but they respect each other. Correct. Somebody said this WBSM endorsed an off face. Oh, no. They're working on getting that sponsorship for seven. (laughs) And then the other comment that I want to address is Scott mentioned that the location is the celebrity. And that's absolutely. Absolutely. I agree, too. The very first phone call that I ever had with Jeff Belanger about Legend Trips, which essentially predated spooky south coast events we did we did a couple spooky south coast events but jeff was involved they were basically legend trips before we had the name and the first thing that he said was what if we started doing events but instead of it being celebrity based what if the location was the star and i said i wouldn't want to do it any other way Mm. right and so that's the way that we've looked at all of these because you're in this awesome historic place that should be your focus not about who you get to hang out with who you get an autograph from there's going to be a point 
where any one of these people at some point is going to give you their autograph for free. <laughs> There's going to be a point in time yep. someday where it's no longer worth 25 bucks to pay somebody to sign something that you're going to run into them at a Walmart or something and be like, hey, can I get an autograph? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, so you're not, you shouldn't be paying $300 to go autograph collecting. You should want to go to these events because you want to be part of the location and what's going on I mean, in the investigation. It, it, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, you should want to be, want to be a part of the location. Yep. Um, but I think a lot of people do also want to meet these people. Which is so fine. I think with the combination the, of both. the combination of both is what makes it great. I'm I'm saying that you shouldn't yes. feel that way, but I'm saying don't completely invalidate the fact that you are in this like take yes. a moment to take in oh, where absolutely. you are. Absolutely. Like well, all the events it. that we've set aside that Bright Star Promotions is set aside for this year and ones that we will be announcing are I would say half to three quarters of them are great historical locations, like the one. But that was, you know, what I had suggested to you when you came to me and said, "This is what I want to do. This is my business plan." I said, "Let's pick locations (laughs) that have historical value and that need help and need money for restoration." Maddie was just trying to push my button on that Perry Unity. Yeah, Yeah, I figured. Okay, I figured because you're like this close to the edge of going off, and that (laughs) was definitely. I was I was definitely walking the edge real fast. You you were. I I want to wrap it up because we've gone over the board here and. uh, and so I will just close out by saying that, uh, you know, nobody's events are better than anybody else's right. uh, except for ours. And we have some that we want to talk about. <laughs> Stephanie, you have something coming up. I do. I actually have an event coming up next weekend on December 2nd at the Blackstone River Theater in Cumberland, Rhode Island with Dustin Perry. He'll be doing a special Christmas lecture and I will be doing a mediumship gallery. So you can go to stephburke.com and get tickets for that or dustinperry.com and um, gosh, I have I have a lot coming up for the next year, but that's my last one for the year this year. It's a local gallery reading, and people have been asking me for a long time, so make sure you grab your tickets to that before they're gone. And if you've never been to the Blackstone River Theater, it's a great little place. Yep. Uh, plenty of parking, easy to get to. Uh, there's, a, there's a nice little bar down the street, too, if you want to grab something to eat after the show, after the event. Uh, what time are you going to? Um, I believe that is till 1030 that night. So plenty of time and to go out and get a we're drink. Having a, well, we're having a Christmas party too, so there's going to be pie and cookies and all kinds of I'm, ta- I'm talking about a grown-up drink. Grown-up drinks? I don't do well with grown-up drinks. No, I, wasn't, oh I didn't invite you. I just said if anybody else oh, wants well, to Oh, well, thank go. you. Uh, but uh, no, certainly, absolutely. The biggest thing is pie and cookies are going to be there. Well, yeah. No, that's only cool. only if you arrive early because Dustin's also there. Well, that's <laughs> so. true. That's absolutely How true. much pie can one man eat? You will find <laughs> out. And uh, and then uh, we have a couple of spooky South Coast events. So we we announced, you know, speaking of Lizzie Borden tonight, yep. with our guest Erica Millman, uh, we actually announced that we are doing an event on March third. Uh, it'll be Lizzie's March to Murder 2017, 18, 2018. And uh, so we will be back, Stephanie and myself. We're going to do it like we did with the event in September, yep. with the old school, new school stuff, which had a lot of interesting activity happening. So that means table tipping. Yep, we'll do the table tipping. We'll do the mirror gazing. We'll do all the all kinds of stuff plus the regular equipment that we usually use. Right. I think there's only like ten or less tickets left for that, so you want to grab those pretty quickly at SpookySouthCoast.com. Makes a great Christmas gift. Right. And uh, also, we just announced, and as I said, you know, this is something that it's it's a year out, but we had to seize the opportunity to have this date. Uh, those of you who heard me talking about the Reverend, um, sorry, the Parson Barnard House in North Andover that uh, I led an investigation of back in October. We happened to just go to the cemetery and find Thomas Barnard's grave and found out that 
his three, the 300th anniversary of his passing is a Saturday night in 2018, October 13th, 2018. He is the reverend who is wrongly accused, it seems, of being one of the instigators of the Salem witch trials. So right. he's been very upset by the fact that, you know, people are assigning him the blame for the, the witch accusations when he actually was trying to work to solve the whole problem. Uh, so on that night, we're calling it the exoneration. We are going to go, we're going to investigate the Parson Barnard house and the cemetery. We're going to try to reach out with Reverend Barnard. We are going to try to get the full and true story out there as much as we can. Uh, I'm actually going to, you know, I know it's only limited to a small amount of tickets, right. but I'm going to try to reach out to the media and see if we can get some attention on this just so that the story can get out there uh, of what's right. So, And when we were at this house, it was insane with activity. There were some people who were actually, they've already bought tickets, they're coming back next year. They spent almost the entire night just in the cemetery. Right. Communicating with the Barnards and other people who were in that cemetery. The whole night they spent just in that cemetery. And meanwhile, we're having insane experiences up in the attic of the house itself. So this place is uh, is amazing. So that's why we wanted to make sure that we grabbed it up on that date uh, because it is such a unique opportunity to be there on the actual anniversary of his passing. So uh, we have that up for sale as well. And again, that's limited. So if you want to, you know, if you're looking for a Christmas present and you want to buy some of these tickets, anybody that buys our ticket events to our ticket. Tickets to our events. <laughs> Knows that with Spooky South Coast, we don't print tickets. Right. We don't have insurance. We don't want to buy ticket insurance and have to charge higher prices mm-hmm. and all that stuff. If you need to give it as a gift and you want something, I can print up some tickets for you. Uh, what I've done in the past for other people is I've made a little video to let people know that they're getting it as a Christmas present. Anything like that that you need, you can just email me, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and let me know when you buy your tickets, and I'll make sure that you get it. So. And, uh, and John, I know you're working on a bunch of stuff. People can stay tuned to your website once you finalize just, everything. Just actually. I know you, have a, you had a Black Friday deal up. Yes. I uh, had a Black Friday deal on the events that are coming up that we have three events at St. Augustine Lighthouse, Fort Adams, and the the big one that I think all of us, including the talent, is looking forward to is Asylum 49 out in Utah. It's been done twice by that other TV show, Ghost Adventures. Um, great location, 216,000 square foot insane asylum. I mean, that's just man- massive. So, well, because there's a lot of Mormons out there. <laughs> when so, you have that many wives, you can't help but go crazy. Yes, but um, <laughs> I'm actually doing, um, I've made the announcement, I'm actually doing my last own personal appearance, unless it's a special event. My last personal appearance at any event will be this coming December 9th and 10th down in Long Island at Haunt Fair. So that's uh, that's what I have for the rest of the year is that one. And then just hoping that uh, all the events go well and people want to come and enjoy us, enjoy the events in 2018. All right. And, uh, and if you've been to any of our events uh, before... You know, then uh, certainly help out and, and, and share the information, especially with John, with everything that's going on. Whatever you can do to help, we appreciate it. I think that does it for this week's show. We have been, we've gone overboard. We've kept Matt up late when he has to get up early in the morning. But uh, I think we've done all the damage that we can for tonight. So until next week, we want everybody out there to stay spooktacular. Mm-hmm.